You seem like a busy person. How did you read two books on the weekend? I did. Hey mate, forty here. Let's uh, go over to Tucker Carlson tonight. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. When we say good evening, we mean it. And tonight we want to send a special, as they say on talk radio, shout out to our most loyal and faithful viewers. We love you. We appreciate you. In fact, we think of you as all little tacos and your children as taquitos. And not just tacos and taquitos, but also enchiladas and chalupas and everything else in the Taco Bell menu. That's how we think of you. So the good news is America at this stage is getting a lot more amusing. The bad news is it's also getting a little scary. So today, in the second category, the government announced that inflation has once again set a year-over-year record. By now, we're used to this. If you buy anything, you already knew it was happening. Boy, did you. But there were parts of today's Labor Department report that were not expected by anyone. In fact, they were bizarre. They seemed to defy the most basic rules of economics. But first, here are the raw numbers. This is from a Fox News report today. Inflation cranked up a whopping 9.1% in June, the highest yearly jump since 1981. The Consumer Price Index, released Wednesday morning, showed the price of necessities far outpacing raises. The price of gas is up almost 60% year over year. Rent went up 5.6% over last June. And food at home and dining out increasing 10.4%. If you break it down to just groceries, the annual jump was 12.2%. That includes eggs up 33% and butter up 26%. So the biggest annual spike in inflation in more than 40 years. That's the headline. But if anything, it understates what's actually going on. The reality of it is worse than that. During the Carter years, when inflation famously hit 14.6%, wages were still going up. As Pew put it in a recent analysis, quote, during the high inflation years of the 1970s and early 1980s, average wages commonly jumped 7, 8, even 9% year over year. And that makes sense. There's more money in circulation. It's worth less, but there's more of it. But that is not what is happening right now. And that's the weird thing. According to the Labor Department report today, quote, real average hourly earnings decreased 3.6% seasonally adjusted from June 2021 to June 2022. The change in real average hourly earnings combined with a decrease of 0.9% of the average work week resulted in a 4.4% decrease in real average weekly earnings over this period. 4.4% average decrease in earnings. This is what economic disaster looks like. Americans are making less money at exactly the moment when everything they buy, from gas to groceries, is more expensive. And not just a little more expensive, a lot more expensive. Here's the big picture. The average American household income this year is about $87,000. Today's inflation numbers means the average household is losing nearly $8,000 a year just from inflation. And by the way, that's using the government's cooked numbers, the 9.1% inflation number, which is derived from the intentionally deceptive consumer price index, CPI. So the real number is actually higher than that. Rising inflation with falling wages. This is very bad. And as we said, it's also very weird. How weird? Well, here's one measure of the strangeness. 
The price of gas is now much cheaper in Mexico than it is in the United States. And that's why so many Californians are now driving across the border to fill their cars. Now, why is this happening? That does not make sense. Oil prices set on the international market. But apart from a few outlier websites like Zero Hedge, which not coincidentally, the left is always trying to shut down and censor, no one seems to be asking that question. We do know that gas prices in Mexico are so cheap that the Mexican government is encouraging more Americans to cross the border to refuel their cars. Right now, said the president of Mexico this week, a gallon of regular cost $4.78 average on your side of the border, while in Mexico it cost $3.12. So you have to ask yourself, if we're paying more for gas because of Putin's price hike, why isn't Mexico paying more for gas because of Putin too? Why is inflation up when wages are down? This doesn't make any sense. So if you want to answer those questions, you really have to look at government spending. Last month, Mexico's government did not follow the Biden administration's lead and send its strategic petroleum reserve to China. They did not do that. Instead, here's what Mexico did. They spent $2 billion in subsidies to keep gas prices lower for consumers. In other words, the government of Mexico in the middle of a drug war is taking better care of its citizens than Joe Biden is taking care of his citizens. And that is shameful. But it doesn't mean Joe Biden is ignoring the needy. In the very same month that gas prices shot beyond the reach of people, people aren't taking trips because of gas prices. Joe Biden, in the name of democracy, signed a $40 billion aid package, not for you or any other American, but for Ukraine. And that money, Joe Biden says, is just the beginning. It's part of our unlimited commitment to funding Ukraine's corrupt and authoritarian government. Here's Biden. For as long as it takes. Does it mean indefinite support from the United States or Ukraine? Or will there come a time when you have to say to President Zelensky that the United States cannot support his country any longer? Thank you. We are going to support Ukraine as long as it takes. We are going to stick with Ukraine and all of the alliance are going to stick with Ukraine as long as it takes. The war has pushed prices up. They could go as high as $200 a barrel, some analysts think. How long is it fair to expect American drivers and drivers around the world to pay that premium for this war? As long as it takes. So Russia cannot, in fact, defeat Ukraine and move beyond Ukraine. Future generations will look at that tape and many tapes like it with their jaws open. As long as it takes, whatever the cost for Ukraine as the American economy heads toward total destruction, Ukrainians are dying in large numbers. Who's winning? Well, Ukrainian oligarchs. They're getting richer, much richer. Since January of this year, the Biden administration has sent about $8 billion just in so-called security assistance alone to Ukraine. That would include missile systems, howitzers, ammunition, radar systems, et cetera, et cetera. Now, defense contractors are making a ton from them, this, and that's why they have lobbied for it so hard. But you have to ask, once we send these weapons to Ukraine, where do they go then? What happens to them? These are sophisticated and deadly weapon systems. Well, no one knows where they go. No one's keeping track. U.S. officials, Biden administration officials, have admitted that to the Wall Street Journal. And we're quoting, once U.S. equipment, materiel, is handed to the Ukrainian government, U.S. officials said they have little direct knowledge of where that materiel goes. They rely instead on the Ukrainian government for such information. The administration has not agreed to allow American military troops to conduct some oversight into that country, end quote.
Huh. So you send billions to Ukraine in the middle of a war, and then you don't bother to find out what happens to it? What will happen to these weapons? Well, the Czech defense minister knows. He has said these weapons, some of them, will be smuggled out of Ukraine. Quote, it's hard to avoid trafficking or smuggling. We didn't achieve it in the former Yugoslavia, and we probably won't avoid it in Ukraine. This is lunacy. If you wanted to make Eastern Europe dangerous and unstable for generations, ensure that war continues and many more die, this is exactly what you would do. You would treat Ukraine like we treated Afghanistan. But that's just the beginning of the money we're sending. On top of all of this security assistance, now the head of USAID, that would be Samantha Power. She's never left. She's still here, amazingly, after wrecking the world. She's announced we're sending $4 billion more to Ukraine to pay off that country's budget deficit. Wouldn't that be nice if Samantha Power decided to pay off our budget deficit, if anyone decided to help us? But no, no one would ever do that. So your tax dollars are now paying the salaries of Ukrainian government bureaucrats. In all, your Congress has approved more than $50 billion for Ukraine. That includes $7 billion in food assistance and health care, health care, along with $9 billion for economic support, whatever that means. There's also $2 billion for refugee assistance. So just as we did in Iraq and Afghanistan and, I don't know, half a dozen other countries, we're sending bales of $100 bills into a war zone and hoping they find the right pockets. Again, this is nuts. And yet leaders of both parties agree we have to keep doing it. Much more of it. Dozens of Democrats in Congress just signed a letter pushing the administration as if they needed to be pushed to award the International Monetary Fund a total of $650 billion in new funding because Ukraine. And on top of all of that, Congressman Adam Kinzinger just proposed an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act calling for another $100 million for, quote, Ukrainian military pilots and associated personnel. Kinzinger's the guy who thought the ghost of Kiev was real. Now, all of this is necessary. It's mandatory. We must, according to members of both parties, because we must defend democracy. Now, we're not picking on Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, a Republican state, but we want to show you this tape. He just sat for an interview with Charlie Kirk and explained that we have to send an unlimited amount of money to Ukraine. Why? To, quote, fight back against communist intrusion for the cause of freedom because Vladimir Putin is evil. Watch. What amount of money is too much to send to Ukraine? Because we just did $1.7 billion or more. Where's the line? Because we're up near $56 billion now. Sure. Well, I, I don't know that the line is a dollar amount, Charlie. I think um, each each request or each requirement, each demand, each circumstance requires its own its own um, discovery, if you will. Um, I don't think we should do a whole bunch necessarily at one time. I think that we should do smaller tranches just for the purpose of renegotiating, you know, reassessing the price of letting Ukraine fall to Russia to the United States taxpayer and to the cause of, of liberty, uh, I think is very, very high. Yeah, fighting the communist menace. These people never update their talking points. Senator Kramer invokes the cause of liberty, and that's a phrase we strongly support. That's an idea we strongly support. That's why we're in favor of unfettered free speech. That's why we oppose vaccine mandates. But you have to ask yourself, what does the cause of liberty have to do with Ukraine? Well, very little. Last February, the Ukrainian government shut down opposition media. Then they arrested the leader of the main opposition party. Now, President Zelensky has decided to combine 
all television stations in Ukraine into a state-owned propaganda ministry in order to combat, quote, misinformation. Now, what is that? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not the profile of a free country, not even close. The cause of liberty, may those words burn in your mouth. Oh, but we have to, they tell us, because Putin is worse. He's the worst person in the world. He's a communist, says Senator Kramer, who plans to conquer the globe. Now, you don't have to like Vladimir Putin to see how absurd this is. Com Putin's a communist now? Really? How communist is Vladimir Putin? Is Vladimir Putin more or less communist than, say, Sandy Cortez? More or less communist than, say, Joe Biden's domestic policy team? Is he a more committed atheist than they are? Is Putin throwing Americans in jail for attending political rallies at the Capitol? Is he trying to confiscate the rifles from your bedroom? Is he sterilizing children in the name of trans liberation? Whatever his many faults, no, Vladimir Putin is not doing any of that. As for his apparently limitless international ambitions, ask yourself, is Vladimir Putin recolonizing Africa right now? Is Vladimir Putin trying to build military bases in the Caribbean and South America? No, he's not. But another country is. That would be China, Joe Biden's patron. Putin wants Crimea. He may succeed in getting it. But it is China that is on its way to controlling the world. Here's a graphic we saw today that illustrates the point. These are the relative sizes of the players in the global economy. The numbers are from the IMF. As you can see, the world is completely dominated by the economic power of China and the United States. As of today, our two economies are roughly equal in size, though thanks to COVID, China is quickly pulling ahead. That is a problem. In fact, that is the biggest problem in the world by far. Nothing comes close because the Chinese empire will not be like our empire at all. So where's Russia in this? How does it fit in? Well, get your reading glasses because Russia is a footnote. It's not irrelevant, but it's close to irrelevant. Russia's economy is smaller than Italy's. The Italians, in other words, are in a better position to take over the world than Vladimir Putin is. This entire conversation is insane. Anyone who takes it seriously is a fool. And anyone who doesn't see the red flags is probably dishonest. The most dishonest, the most power-hungry people in the United States are the very ones yelling the loudest for a war with Russia. That would be Joe Biden. That would be Nancy Pelosi. That would be Chuck Schumer. That would be Adam Schiff. These are the people telling you that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal bent on world domination. Why are they saying that? Why are they suggesting Vladimir Putin's going to take over Europe? That's not true. But why are they saying it? Well, there's a reason. A reason that has precisely nothing to do with saving lives or making Ukraine a better country. <laughs> Again, red flag, anyone? And yet somehow Republicans don't see it. They don't seem curious about why the worst people in America are for an endless war with Russia. In fact, apart from Marjorie Taylor Greene and a few other Republicans in Congress, they are all in. Whatever Joe Biden wants in Ukraine, they support. Here, for example, is Lindsey Graham with his little friend Richard Blumenthal. That would be Connecticut's most famous Vietnam War hero. Here they are together. This picture ought to tell you something about America right now. There's bipartisan support to defeat Putin, to call him out as a pariah and a war criminal. When we get back, uh, we're going to try to get the Senate as a whole to pass the resolution, hopefully leading the way for the administration to label Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism uh, in the category of Iran 
Syria, and North Korea. Defeat Putin. Will that improve your life? Is it improving the lives of the Ukrainians right now? No, it's not. And yet every person who has been on the wrong side of every foreign policy decision going back 40 years is on the same page. And that, of course, would include John Bolton, the former national security advisor, who, by the way, just admitted on national television that he has personally engineered coups in foreign countries. Wait, we're not for democracy? <laughs> Apparently not. John Bolton isn't. But wasn't democracy the whole point? Were those coups state-sponsored terror? No one's asking. No one's calling John Bolton a war criminal. Instead, here's what they're saying. Biden studiously avoids doing the one thing, though, that could really bring down the price of crude. He needs to arm the Ukrainians to the teeth so they can quickly beat Russia and put the war to bed. Could we make Ukraine safe for agriculture? Sure. But we might have to set up a no-fly zone in the western part of the country, which Biden doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to create a no-fly zone because that's American fighter planes firing at Russian ones. And it's a hop, skip, and a jump from there to nuclear war. I understand that. By the way, I think there's a very good argument for that. But a no-fly zone is, while extremely risky, it is the best way to get food inflation under control. <laughs> Wait, what? I tuned in to find out whether I should buy Cisco on the dip. And you're a foreign policy expert now? The American economy is in serious trouble. It's heading south faster than anyone anticipated. But instead, you flip on CNBC and the geniuses are talking about World War III. And they're not the only ones. So if you want to know how big this has become, how ominous this is, in the absence of attention from the rest of us, we've kind of sleptwalked up to this point, you should see this. This is from the city of New York, our largest city. This is a public service announcement reminding the 8 million residents of New York they could soon be nuked. So there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit, okay? So what do we do? Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. Stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement? Head there. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. What? Now, if you were drinking beer and that came on TV, you'd think maybe she was giving you advice on what to do if your basement floods or if there's a heat wave. Then you get the part where she says radioactive dust and you snap to a t radioactive dust. You're suggesting that someone might lob a nuclear weapon into our largest city? What? Why the chirpy tone? What the hell are you talking about? How do we get so close to nuclear war that the city of New York is telling me to wash the radioactive dust off my pants? This is total lunacy. This is crazy. Why are we doing this? Because Putin's bad and he's going to take over Belgium? Because nobody has said anything. And because the Republican Party has collaborated with the nutcases in the Biden administration, we have reached the point where some chirpy lady on TV is telling you to prepare for the deaths of tens of millions of Americans. Wake up. So the polling, again, in the good news column, looking pretty bad, pretty much across the board for old Joe Biden. But... 
Biden has a response for the haters. Fox's Trace Gallagher has that story for us tonight. Hey, Trace. Hey, Tucker, whether it's accusing border agents of whipping Haitian migrants or calling White House correspondents stupid SOBs, President Biden has a history of getting angry, agitated, and hopping over the facts to get to the politics. This was at the White House congressional picnic when the president was asked about a majority of Democrats opposed to him running again. The soundbite is 22 seconds, but well worth the watch. Mr. President, what's your message to Democrats who don't want you to run again? They want me to run. Two-thirds say they Read don't. Read the polls. Read the polls, Jack. You guys are all the same. That poll showed that 92% of Democrats, if I ran, would vote for me. A majority of Democrats say they don't want you to run again in no. 2024. 92% said if I did, they'd vote for me. Well, they are both talking about the New York Times-Siena College poll, but the 92% number that the president cherry-picked is only referring to Democratic support in a hypothetical rematch with Donald Trump. The reporter there was correct that overall 64% of Democrats think somebody else should run in 2024, and it gets worse. 94% of Democrats under the age of 30 want a different nominee altogether, and only 13% of Americans believe the country is on the right track. Jack Tucker. Trace Gallagher for us. If someone's going to shoot your dog if you didn't, would you vote for Joe Biden? 92% say yes. <laughs> Trace Gallagher for us. Thank you for that. Well, you probably heard a lot if you watch TV, and we don't recommend that until 8 p.m., but whatever. If you have, you've heard a lot about a 10-year-old girl who was raped in Ohio and then supposedly had to flee to Indiana to seek an abortion. Joe Biden has told that story a lot. Every other media outlet, of course, repeated it. it wasn't true in its details. We're learning the actual truth, and it turns out the headline here is someone raped a 10-year-old. The headline is not, oh, she couldn't have an abortion. Someone raped a 10-year-old. And now we know who did. And we'll tell you after the break. Hey, g'day, mate. Forty here. So I, I get these hard one insights, right? I, I, like I, I'm reading the deep and difficult books, right? I, I'm I'm studying, perusing the latest academic scholarship, and so I often get quite excited about the ideas that I'm uncovering, like new perspectives on life, or just hard one insights that I get from brutal experience on the hard streets of Los Angeles. And so I've got one friend who, whenever I share some hard one insight, so, something that I've wrung from my own experience or from a book, his response is, oh, obviously, right? Obviously is not a good response, right? When someone's excited to share something with you because you're saying that you already know it and you're smarter than that person and that they're just bothering you. So this is from Charisma on Command. In other areas of your life. But if you find yourself saying this after someone has told you something that they thought was novel and interesting to you, you are essentially dismissing what they said. You're saying your perspective has nothing new to add. I already knew that. It was so obvious to me. And I am so smart for having known this before you told me. Now, what should you do in the scenarios where someone is telling you something that you already knew? you put yourself on the same path as them. You are two learners. So you might say, for instance, oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I was just reading a book on the same topic and it was saying a lot of what you had to say. Or you know what's funny? I studied this in all throughout my college and my senior. Right, get on the same path with people. Don't tell them obviously, all right? It, it, it doesn't feel good. Let me tell you, right, from, from someone who loves to share his, his wit and wisdom. 
All right, let's get some wit and wisdom here from Ken Brown. Like things that have nothing to do with uh, intelligence, but have strong correlations. Maybe it turns out that, um, you know, for instance, we, we're, we're going to say that the white IQ is 100, the black American IQ is 85, and we're going to say that there's these allele frequency differentiations, and we found these genes that correlate with one population or another. Have we deterministically figured out with certainty that these are the determinants for intelligence, that they're actually, these specific genes are engaged in neural activity? or increased neural activity or complexity or whatever it is that we think is increasing intelligence. Can we confirm that? The only way for me to confirm that would be to do kind of A-B testing. It would be to introduce these genes, turn them off, turn them on again. That's difficult to do. Is that an intergenerational thing? Can you do that epigenetically? Can you go in there with mRNA technology? So this is the next step. If you say, well, no, we've 100% confirmed with certainty that these genes, these little genes, the list of 100 genes, and they're all strongly correlate with intelligence. And if you have them, you'll be more intelligent. Look, Ken Brown, if you don't want to talk about the truth, right? if you don't want to face up to tough, unpleasant truths, if you don't want to talk about what is true and what is important right, for strategic reasons, for reasons of your own social welfare, for reasons of your own prestige and status, then don't intellectualize your cowardice. Right? Don't intellectualize your social positioning. Right? Don't, don't intellectualize how you're just so much wiser than, than everyone else who's actually interested in telling the truth, right? There are all sorts of truths that I don't say here because many basic truths of life are not permitted to say on YouTube. But I'm not going to stand here and intellectualize and pretend that I understand something so much better than the, the real truth tellers, right? The brave people who, who say the truth, even though it's politically incorrect and uh, socially unacceptable. If you don't have them, you'll be less intelligent. Okay, well, mRNA is in development, we could create, I don't want to say the V word, but we could create some kind of injection with mRNA that changes someone's DNA. And so if you're going to say that these 100 genes are responsible for a 15-point IQ gap, which I just don't believe, but let's say I'm wrong, and that's the case, then all you... Whether there aren't, there isn't like one gene or seven genes that account for intelligence, all right? We don't know how many hundreds and thousands of genes account for intelligence. But what, what Cam Brown is against is noting that there is dramatically different intelligence levels and crime rate difference levels between various groups. And it's a handy heuristic for making your way through life more effectively. All you have to do is create some kind of injection, mRNA, that changes these genes, either turns them on or turns them off. And you could engineer, you could wipe it out in a generation. Now, you couldn't do that if the genes were so bad, if, if it was millions of genes, you know, all working in concert Which is together, turn and out each to gene be. was like, you know, a tenth of a tenth of a percent difference. If it was millions of genes that make up this 15-point gap, that would be something different. And yeah, and uh, that, that's what we're going to find out. All right, let's get a little bit more here from Tucker Carlson. To Joe Biden, other human beings only exist to the extent they can be used for partisan ends. So it shouldn't surprise you that on Friday he used the story of a 10-year-old rape victim to push for more abortion. According to Joe Biden, the laws in Ohio forced a 10-year-old rape victim to flee to Indiana to get that abortion. Now, the White House never vetted the facts of that story. as the President of the United States saying things that no one checked. But the facts didn't make any sense. On Monday, for example, the Attorney General of Ohio said there would not be a reason for this child to flee to Ohio in the first place. Watch. 
Ohio's heartbeat law has a medical emergency exception, uh, broader than just the life uh, of the mother. Uh, she, th this young girl, if she exists and if this horrible thing actually happened to her, breaks my heart to think about it, she did not have to leave Ohio to find treatment. So the obvious headline here was not about abortion. It was about the crime committed against a child. Who raped a 10-year-old? That was our first question. Nobody seemed interested at all in learning who this person was. And maybe there was a reason for that. In fact, there was another moral to the story. Apparently, the rapist was an illegal alien. The Columbus Dispatch is reporting tonight that a 27-year-old called Gershon Fuentes has confessed to raping the 10-year-old child on multiple occasions. Victor Davis Hansen is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and we're happy to have him join us tonight. Professor, thanks so much for coming on. So what do you take from this story? Well, it's a tragic story, Tucker, but it, it gets more mysterious every day because apparently this terrible, horrendous act was reported on the 22nd or nearabouts in June. And here we are on July 13th, 14th, and we're only now learning about who did this. In other words, this perpetrator apparently was not charged or arraigned, and yet people knew that he had coerced a young, maybe at the time, a nine-year-old to be pregnant. And so the question is, why now, at this belated date, are we learning who he was? And maybe, I mean, a, a naive might say, well, it was because people had questioned the veracity of the story and people, for whatever nebulous reasons, didn't want to reveal his identity until revealing his identity was the only mechanism for substantiating the story in the first place. But in that time, it seems like a person who had a proclivity to have, you know, coercive sex with minors was still out there. And we don't know what he was doing. He should have been, as soon as they reported the act, he should have been arraigned immediately. And then the next thing was the attorney general mentioned the heartbeat law at six weeks. But the abortionist who became the spokesman for the story said, well, the abortion was committed, uh, was um, done six weeks and three days. I mean, can't you, why was it so close to that date? It was almost as if, if you knew about this act, you had a, 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 a method inside Ohio, if you believe that that was a proper course, it would have been legal within six weeks rather than to go over to Indiana and then be told, well, it was six weeks and three days. It doesn't, the whole, all of these details, they reek of uh, a political weaponization of the case, which is tragic because we have a nine-year-old, I guess at the time of the act, she was nine, and she's being used for political purposes, which is terrible. And then we have this perpetrator, and now we learn that he is here is saying, illegally from Guatemala, and he's residing illegally. And no one has—he uh, was the act was reported, and for two, almost three weeks, he hasn't been charged. So uh, it, we don't—we're going to have to wait for more details. But it's—it's it's mysterious. It's terrible what's going on. So it sounds like in this case, as in. Pretty much every case we've reported on for the past five years, the first version was a lie. Everything is partisan propaganda and kind of believe nothing at first. Maybe that's the takeaway. It reminds me a lot of the whipping story that Joe Biden also promulgated yeah. about Border Patrol's whipping people. And we found out only later that it wasn't true at all. And then there were desperate efforts to bring in more evidence to sort of incriminate them to save the reputation of the president. So I think what's happened is they, 
this fellow was finally charged when they needed some substantiation of this story, but they didn't seem, they seemed reluctant to charge him quicker and more and almost immediately because they felt the story would be believable and be useful on its own merits. And then when people questioned it and wanted details, only then did they start releasing the details, which caused only more mystery. But the whole thing is, is I, I think it's, it's terrible because it shows you that people are using a 10-year-old and, the, yeah. and protecting, in some cases, an illegal alien, if that happened to be true, that they deliberately delayed arraigning him until they needed evidence to substantiate this useful story. It's, it's, it's right. terrible. They don't care about people. They care about power. Victor Davis Hanson, appreciate your coming on tonight. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. So in recent years, the U.S. military secretly collected a trove of information about vaccine effectiveness in January 6th. Ooh, shouldn't you be winning a war once in a while? No, they've been collecting information on you. The U.S. Congress is trying to hide that information from you so no one can ever see it, and they're voting on that tomorrow. We've got details after the break. I've been trying to figure out why a friend was getting up my nerves because this is this is a good friend, someone who's you know enhanced my life, who I enjoy having in my life. But the guy was just bugging me and bugging me and bugging me, and I kind of intuited some of it. Some of it was because he reminded me of myself with, with all sorts of very confident pronouncements about things which he he didn't know very much, and then. What else? I guess it was the contempt that, you know, I know so much better than you. I've never really responded positively to people talking down to me and treating me like I was stupid. But I couldn't quite tweak why I needed you know, less of this person in, in certain areas of my life. So I'm not a big fan of cutting people completely out of your life, but I needed to like move him out of, you know, one type of interaction to, to another type of interaction and couldn't quite figure out what the heck is going on because he was being very forthright, right? He was just telling me like it was from, from his perspective. And I was just, I was just done with it. I was just increasingly annoyed and uh, ticked off. And then I found this terrific YouTube channel, How Communication Works. It's by a university professor. And he kind of nails the experience for me. Video, I want to tackle an age old problem. Should we be completely honest, bluntly, brutally honest, or should we be tactful and diplomatic? Which one is it? Is there a choice? Can we be both? I'm Bruce Lambert from HowCommunicationWorks.com. Let's get started. So in my last video, I reviewed this um, email that Charles Krauthammer, the former columnist for the Washington Post, sent to a friend who had uh, died or who had been injured in an accident. It was a beautiful email. But Charles Krauthammer died last week, and a lot of people have been posting things about him in social media. And so a, a, a famous... Uh, quotation by Krauthammer was posted on Twitter that I read. I'll, I'll put it up on screen, but I'll just read it here. It said, you're, bet you're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think, and you don't say it honestly and bluntly. <laughs> so this reminds me of Ray Dalio, who I made a video about before, who says we should practice radical honesty, radical transparency. And that's what I want to talk about today. Is that a good idea? Is that good advice for, for communicators? And the short answer is no. I think this is terrible advice. Uh, and for the reasons that I want to... Yeah, it, it's terrible advice because people need to feel safe with you if they're going to interact with you. Now, Ricardo nails it in the chat, nails it, meaning he gets like right to the nub of the issue. He's, he's got a gift. And so he says... Uh, 40, you should have just canceled your Washington Post subscription. Why? 
I mean, there are lots of terrific articles in, in the Washington Post. There was a great profile on Adam Schefter of ESPN yesterday. So I don't need the Washington Post to reflect back to me my political, cultural, and religious biases. The Washington Post has approximately 1,000 journalists out there, and I would expect that more than 90% of them are on the left. But they, they often bring me articles that I find useful, and it only costs me about $100 a year. So why should I cancel my Washington Post subscription? And uh, Ricardo says... He hit you in the nuts when he criticized your New York Times and Washington Post subscriptions. Yeah. What? I find it ridiculous because he doesn't read these publications. Uh, two, people, people's sources of what they regard as accurate or, or important are like the very essence of a man, right? A man has the sources of what he regards as truth, and then he combines them with his moral values. And so you disparage a man's sources of information, all right? Then you're you're disparaging him. That's just how how men work. So am I saying the New York Times and the Washington Post is always right? Obviously not. I disagree with the Washington Post and the New York Times all the time. Am I saying that there are frequently useful articles that make it worth a subscription if you're someone who adamantly wants to keep up on the news? Yes. Like pretty much every day I find a good article or two in the Washington Post or the New York Times and I get good, good bang for my buck. But yeah, if you have contempt for me because I subscribe to left-wing sources of information, then I guess I do take that personally. I take it a lot more personally and I guess I'm a lot more sensitive than I thought. Also, if you have a suggestion for someone, right? So my friend was trying to deprogram me from my New York Times, Washington Post uh, addiction. If you got a, like that kind of suggestion for someone, make it once, make it twice. Don't make it 55 times, right? Contemptuous, I know better than you. I'm trying to deprogram 40 from subscribing to the New York Times and the Washington Post, right? That's not an effective way to live. You got a suggestion for someone, make it once, ideally, and just drop it there. Don't make it three times, don't make it five times, right? Certainly don't make it 55 times. It's uh, highly annoying. So, it don't come from like up here that you're going to deprogram somebody else, particularly when you're not doing the work, you're not reading the articles, right? You're just taking it in the fact Ideologues get powered, they waste no time. Their aggression has no limits. They change as much as they can, as quickly as they can, while they have power. That's what's happening right now. That's why it's so hard to keep up with everything that's changing. Here's a story you probably haven't heard. Adam Schiff, congressman from California, now proposing an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would hide any information collected by the U.S. military for use in congressional investigations. That would include information about Afghanistan, vaccine mandates, and January 6th. Now, why would the U.S. military be collecting information about January 6th? Huh? Not really their job. But that would include information about, for example, Ray Epps, the mysterious man who urged people to storm the Capitol on January 5th and 6th and has never been indicted. Really? And just in case you already had suspicions about Ray Epps, you should know there was a glowing profile of him today in the New York Times title of the piece was how Ray Epps became the victim of a January 6th conspiracy theory. This guy was on camera repeatedly telling people to storm the Capitol. 
A lot of other people who did that are still in jail. But Ray Epps is not. But it's a conspiracy theory. No one has covered this story more faithfully, more precisely, more doggedly than Julie Kelly. She's the author of January 6th, How the Democrats Used the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. Julie Kelly joins us now. Julie, thanks so much for coming on. So first to this, at this amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, I think the vote's tomorrow, by Adam Schiff. What, what is this exactly? Well, you know, since Adam Schiff's name is attached to it, that it's nothing good. It's not like he is a transparency champion for good government. He is a cover-up artist for bad government. So to your point, what this means is that he is trying to stick this into this massive bill that will enable the Department of Defense under Joe Biden to conceal information collected related to really anything that the Defense Department has been involved in, especially related to domestic law enforcement, which we know is already unlawful. So this is very sketchy. Uh, I've talked to military experts, including attorneys. They're not sure what this means. Uh, but we know since, as I said, with Adam Schiff's name attached to it, uh, it can be up to no good except to act in service to cover up things that the American public deserve to know. The U.S. military is not allowed to be involved in any way, even in the most minor way, involved in domestic politics, period, ever, under no circumstances. So this suggests the U.S. military under Joe Biden is involved in domestic politics. Well, we also know, Tucker, from reporting by Newsweek, uh, a bombshell article earlier this year that said that military assets were involved in January 6th, even leading up to the events of January 6th. What was the military doing? Uh, they can't collect domestic intelligence. They can't, as you just said, act as local cops or law enforcement. So what were these military assets doing? Um, and we know that the military was fully hostile to Donald Trump. His own military leaders, including uh, Mark Milley, were completely hostile to the president at that point. So this looks like a way to obscure materials, documents, records, communications from any congressional inquiry. Um, it also relates to criminal, ongoing criminal proceedings, which could relate to January 6th prosecutions. Yeah. So it did pass, and it, it is embedded in this uh, in this massive bill. Hopefully, Republicans will uh, do some more digging and ask what this is all about. They should do something. This is their job. Meanwhile, Ray Epps, the one insurrectionist the New York Times likes. We should know about that <laughs> much more than we right. know. Julie Kelly, great to see you tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Tucker. So the massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, has been used for the pretext to disarm you. But the actual evidence shows malfeasance at a level that staggers the imagination. Officers loitering in a hallway as children were being killed. Ryan Petty lost his daughter in the Parkland massacre. Then he helped investigate it. He joins us to assess what happened in Uvalde, Texas. That's next. Okay, Ricardo, got some great questions in the chat. 40, would you be willing to sacrifice your LA Times subscription to have your friend back in your life? No, I would not be willing to sacrifice any subscriptions to have any friend uh, back in, in my life. There's no way that I would allow someone to bully me out of subscribing to whatever publication I wanted. And so my friend was day in, day out trying to bully me out of my subscriptions. And so I'm just not going to put up with that. I'm just way too stubborn. And uh, he's still in my life. We, we still DM. I just had to shift, shift the, the interactions a little bit.
There are times when prestige media is more credible and compelling, and there are other times where dissident voices are more apt. A absolutely. So I think you should read the New York Times article on Ray Epps, right? And combine it with Tucker Carlson. And guess what? When you combine the two, I think the New York Times article is more important, right? I don't believe in the Tucker Carlson revolver news uh, conspiracy theorizing about Ray Epps, right? So Ray Epps was not a bystander on January 6th. He traveled to Washington, D.C. to back up Mr. Trump. He is on tape urging people to go to the Capitol. He was there himself on the day of the assault, all right? And he is on tape telling people to enter the, the Capitol, right? So he definitely was a participant in many of the events that unfolded on January 6th. But the, the claim that he inspired the Capitol riot is in some kind of false flag plot is bizarre. And it's based on the fact that he's never been arrested. Therefore, he must be under the protection of the government. So number one, I don't believe in either the left wing or the right wing conspiracy theories that the Capitol riot was some deeply planned conspiracy. To me, it looks like a mob getting out of control. So I don't side with either the left or the right. Now, why was Epps not arrested and taken into custody? And he says that he acted stupidly at times. And he also says he managed to avoid arrest because he reached out to the FBI within minutes of discovering that agents wanted to talk to him. So he found out January 8th that the FBI wanted to talk to him and he immediately called and spoke to people in the FBI. So Epps told agents he spent much of his time at the Capitol seeking to calm down other rioters, an assertion which is supported by multiple video clips. He's been interviewed twice by the House Select Committee. Now, the night before the riots, he was videotaped encouraging people to go inside the Capitol on January 6th, which he described at the time as a form of peaceful protest. All right, now, this clip is used to depict Ray Epps as a man who not only urged people to riot at the Capitol, but then evaded prosecution. All right, but the legal definition of incitement requires a person's words to cause an immediate threat of danger, not one that could possibly occur the next day. So on January 6th, Epps thought he could reduce the violence, stop the violence of the Capitol. He inserted himself into a conflict between the police and members of the pro-Trump mob. And he's seen in videos from around 1 p.m. that day accosting one particular rioter who'd started to confront officers behind a metal barricade on the west side of the Capitol. And Epps said he intervened to try to keep this rioter from attacking the police, try to tell the rioter that the officers were merely doing their jobs. Now, Epps sent a text to his nephew at the time discussing how he helped orchestrate the movement of people who were leaving Trump's speech near the White House by pointing them in the direction of the Capitol. So he did go past barricades into restricted areas of Capitol grounds. He did not go into the building itself. So the vast majority of those who did not enter the building and did not commit additional crimes also have not been charged. And once the violence started spreading, Epps had already left the Capitol trying to help a sick protester to safety. So the efforts of Tucker Carlson, Revolver News, and other right-wing conspiracy theorists to ruin this guy's life and point him as some kind of federal agent who is instigating the Capitol riots is just horrible. It's just, just one more example of why I think Tucker Carlson is frequently irresponsible and why I, I believe you need multiple sources of information. I heard... Tucker Carlson's perspective, I heard the Revolver News perspective, and I had the opportunity to read the 
New York Times account. And of those various accounts in this area, I think the New York Times is closer to the truth. Now, in many other areas, such as on immigration, I think Tucker Carlson is far closer to the truth. I also support Tucker Carlson's general free speech perspective. Uh, Star Lion says, Luke, I have a problem trying to de-radicalize my friend. He still likes Eric Stryker. Well, he's probably incredibly self-destructive and, and lonely. And so people will have to go their own journey, right? Nobody wants to be de-radicalized by anyone else. All the bad things going on, the drug epidemic may be among the worst, if not the worst. More than 100,000 Americans died of drug ODs last year. Drugs came from China, mostly moved up with the help of the cartels through Mexico, through our open border. Fentanyl was the single biggest cause of death. Now, in a lot of cases, particularly with young people, these weren't really ODs, they were poisoning. People who ordered pills online, they were in fact fentanyl and killed them. They weren't drug addicts, they just made a mistake. We wanted to talk to someone who'd seen this happen. Everyone knows someone. It happened to Ed Ternan's son, Charlie. One of the saddest conversations, but most important conversations we've ever had. We sat down with him for an episode of Tucker Carlson today, and we asked him what happened to your son and why. Here's part of it. Okay, we'll skip this segment back to the chat. Luke, we care about your mind. We want you to give out the prestige media drugs. Well, what, what are superior sources of information? Tucker Carlson, Fox News, uh, for all their beauties and for all their strong points, this is hate porn, right? This is, this is tabloid media, right? You want something thoughtful, some researched information about what's going on in the world around you. Yeah, I like uh, Steve Saylor's blog. Uh, there's useful information at uh, various websites, but nothing comes close to, to the reach and the depth and the quality of the New York Times. And then the LA Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal have their moments as well. Friends don't let friends subscribe to Prestige Media. <laughs> One thing I will criticize is Ford's use of cheap microphone cables. The repeated audio gaps are indeed troubling. Alex Jones is instructing his followers not to burn down Bill Gates's home. Uh, Ricardo says, Glib Medley, we need you to go on the show and have an intervention with Luke over his prestige media habit. Right? Yeah, New York Times, Washington Post are the mouthpieces of the establishment. Okay, so what are the best, better sources? And don't tell me New York Post and Fox News. All right? New York Post and Fox News have their place as, as some uh, tabloid uh, media outlets, but there's absolutely no replacement for the New York Times and the Washington Post. Sometimes the elite are right, and sometimes the dissidents are right. right? You have to evaluate everything critically. The FBI released apps after they discovered he was a New York Times subscriber. So the other 659 people arrested should have just called the FBI first and all would be good. No, I, I think that's absurd. I don't think Ray Epps being arrested or, or not arrested had anything to do with him calling the FBI first. Right? There were people arrested who didn't even go in. That is true. So the New York Times published an alibi. You have to read the news story. Read the news story. 
read Revolver News and uh, tell me who you think is more credible. But you should watch it because this is happening to so many families, thousands of families around the country. So that interview is on Tucker Carlson today, tomorrow at 7 a.m. on Fox Nation. So new video from within Robb Elementary School on that horrible day in Uvalde, Texas, show officers standing inside a hallway for roughly an hour. One officer, the show has confirmed, is a trained sheriff's deputy, washes his hands with hand sanitizer while another checks his cell phone. As this is happening, as they're loitering in the hallway, a lunatic is executing children inside the classroom. Now, we almost always defend police officers on this show, but there's no defending that. And there's certainly no defending the political uses this tragedy has been put to. Politicians in Washington are using that killing to seize firearms from law-abiding Americans. Ryan Petty is a member of the Florida Board of Education. His daughter was murdered in the Parkland shooting. He was part of the commission that investigated what happened. He joins us tonight. Mr. Petty, thanks so much for coming on. You know, you hesitate even to put, we hesitated even to put those pictures on the screen because it's, they're just so, so awful. But you also think, shouldn't the people who stood by while this happened, whose duty it was to stop it, shouldn't they be punished? You know, Tucker, I've got mixed feelings about this. Uh, obviously, yeah, me too. I, you know, I, I fought for uh, keeping the video of what happened in Parkland private. Um, yep. But boy, seeing this, seeing the failure, seeing, you know, I counted upwards of 19 law enforcement officers in that hallway that day just waiting. And it was over an hour before uh, finally they mustered the courage to go have the gunfight that they should have had two minutes in to that unfortunate tragedy. Exactly. 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 I mean, we give cops every benefit of every doubt. You know, they're vital to the functioning of a society. They're underpaid. They're brave. I mean, you know, can't say enough good things about cops. On the other hand, this is inexcusable. It's cowardice. It should be punished. And why can't we as citizens get a straight answer about what happened? Well, I think the reason we haven't gotten a straight answer is because they knew the truth. And now we're seeing it. Uh, but with the release of this video, we're seeing the inaction. We're seeing, unfortunately, the deadly consequences of poor training, perhaps a lack of funding, but certainly on the part of several of those law enforcement officers, I saw a lack of courage. Those were yeah. kids, elementary school kids, and those gunshots are going off, and every shot is another child being killed, and they're standing outside more worried about their cell phones and hand sanitizer than they are protecting those innocent lives in that classroom. So maybe the reason it took this long to get the video is this was immediately used by power-hungry politicians to increase their power. Well, that happens after each one of these tragedies. It happened after Parkland, and unfortunately we're seeing it today. The calls for gun control, right? Act The activists and the politicians used these opportunities to again, infringe on our rights and law-abiding gun owners' rights to, uh, they use these tragedies to further their yeah. political causes. And, and really what they should have done is everybody should have said, hey, let's slow down, let's investigate yes. what happened here, let's right. understand where the failures were, and then let's make policy. Exactly, exactly. That's not a partisan point you just made, it's a common sense point, and I'm glad that you made it. Okay, so Ricardo says that uh, 4chan is a better source of truth than the New York Times. Well, in some instances, 
4chan is a better source of truth than the New York Times, but 4chan is the equivalent of a fecal transplant. Some people would benefit from diving into a sewer and ingesting from, from that sewer, right? When you cruise 4chan, you're diving into a sewer. And so absolutely, I'm sure that fecal transplants, even do-it-yourself fecal transplants by just swimming around in a sewer, that may sometimes give you the nutrients that you need. It may revolutionize your life, right? It may transform your health. But for 99.9% .9 of people, they are not improved by going on 4chan, right? 4chan is an absolute sewer. Right. But yeah, at times it, it has its place. And at times, yeah, it is definitely a better source of information than the New York Times. Anyway, this is my best understanding. All right. This is my best source of information for why my friend was driving me crazy. Friend's still in my life. I'm not eager to cut people out of my life. We still DM back and forth. We just had to kind of switch the switch the group that he was I'll in. Explain. Um there are there are multiple reasons. I think the first one is if you follow this advice, you're going to harm yourself. You're going to lose relationships. You're going to suffer negative professional consequences. If you learn tact and diplomacy, this is the essence of social skill. People will trust you. They will want to be around you. It's not like they'll trust you um, to uh, borrow their car or they'll trust you to, to watch their money or their daughter or something like that. But it's that they will trust you that you are a safe person to interact with. When each of us enters into an interaction, it's an inherently risky proposition. Any of us could be humiliated. That's such a, an important, obvious point that I didn't really think about. But every time we interact with people, it's risky, all right? And when people show that they're not safe to interact with because they have you know, no concern for your well-being, right? Because they're going to be trying to humiliate you. A normal, healthy response is to avoid interacting with that person, to severely restrict interacting with that person, right? All interactions come with risks. Why would one go on with interactions that are just continually taking a negative toll on one? And embarrassed, ashamed, and lose face in any interaction. So one thing that we evaluate every time we interact with someone is, are they safe to interact with? And one of the main... Uh, basis, the basis that we use to decide whether people are safe to interact with is, will they cooperate with us in avoiding humiliation and cooperate with us in saving face? And someone who and uh, Ricardo says, the New York Times is worse than a sewer. It's a lake of fire. So tell me about the last uh, 10 New York Times articles you've read and how they are a lake of fire. Right. I just skip New York Times articles that I, I don't think will be useful. I, I feel no moral obligation to read any particular article in the New York Times. I only look at the ones that uh, I think will benefit my life, such as getting a different perspective on Ray Epps. Now, with pretty much everyone else who does what I do, they only speak to an echo chamber, right? They only speak to people who kind of reinforce their particular point of view. And that's not how I go about things in my real life, not just on the show. I want to see the left-wing critique of right-wing ideas. I want to get diverse sources of information and diverse sources of perspective and diverse sources of, of commentary. I, I want all those things, right? I don't want to live in an echo chamber. Who is brutally honest, who believes that being honest is the most important thing, that person is not safe to interact with under most circumstances. They don't care about my feelings. They don't care about me being humiliated or losing face. They don't care about humiliating other people that we might be interacting with. These people are not safe to be around in a personal or professional situation. They lack tact. They lack 
poise. They lack diplomacy. These things are desirable. Um, but there's a, there's a tension. I'm not denying that there's a tension. So Ricardo comes through. He links to a New York Times article. I just want something that's gay and happy. LGBTQ romance is booming. Look, if you don't like the positive press that the New York Times gives to the LGBT community, I, I get that. But then you need to be consistent, do you not? So you basically can't watch the NFL, right? I mean, the NFL is, is promoting all sorts of queer things. You can't watch TV, right? You have to basically abstain from movies and TV and, and media because all these industries are dominated by either LGBTQ people or people who are friendly to the LGBTQ community. So if your objection to the New York Times is that they have the exact same attitude towards LGBTQ issues as every other major media source and entertainment source in the country, then, okay, yeah, the New York Times is the same as dozens of other media and entertainment outlets. It's uh, quite friendly to the LGBTQ community. And if that offends you, then how are you not offended by TV and other sources of, of entertainment and news that are promoting the same agenda, right? If you say, oh, 40, I have completely disconnected from mainstream media, right? And from entertainment and from movies and TV, I, I no longer watch TV, right? Then, yeah, absolutely, you're, you're consistent, right? Th then, then it's not just uh, some, some particular thing that you've got against the New York Times. But the New York Times agenda on gay stuff is exactly the same as every other major media outlet. So we learned recently that Joe Biden's daughter said her dad showered with her as a child and made her sexually convulsive in later life. Then we learned that Biden's family refers to him privately as pedo Pete. Once we learn these things, maybe Joe Biden could stop sniffing children. And if you work for Joe Biden, if you were Susan Rice or Ron Klein, you say, hey, Mr. President, stop sniffing people. But he continues. Here's video from Sunday. Sniffing a random girl he met on a bike path. Stop sniffing children, Joe Biden. Hopefully that's message reaches him at some point. We're out of time. Sean Hannity is next. See you tomorrow. Last night twerking. Now we got creepy Joe. I don't know where to start. Yeah. That's two Sorry. nights in a row. Uh, it is news. scary. All right, Tucker, thank you. And tonight, Biden jets abroad for the first Middle East trip of his presidency. And yes, it is filled with the typical blunders. We'll show you the low lights straight ahead. Also tonight, Piers Morgan, he will join us to discuss his calls that America should invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Joe Biden. That's coming up. But first tonight, we start right here at home where Biden's failed far left climate calls. Okay, if there's anything interesting on, on Hannity, we'll pay attention to it. And Ricardo is consistent. All right. He's checking out of the NFL. He is unsubscribed from YouTube TV. He's unsubscribed from Netflix. He's not watching any movies made past 2010. Now, I think there's a lot of great, compelling content on YouTube TV and in, in modern movies. So I, I haven't gone as far as uh, Ricardo has, but uh, I'm, I'm in the world, but, but not of the world. Anyway, this bloke, this professor is making really important points on the question, should you be honest or, or polite, right? If you don't operate with tact, you're not a safe person and sane, healthy people will shy away from you, meaning that the only people who will hang with you are insane, dangerous, mentally ill people. Or I'm not denying that there's value in honesty. Uh, ideally, we want to be honest with people. 
And I think that it's uh, through being honest and vulnerable and authentic, whatever that means, that we build relationships, that we build intimacy. So I think that honesty is essential for growing relationships and for growing intimacy. Uh, so I don't want you to hear what I'm saying as saying, don't be honest. <laughs> I'm saying, don't be blunt. And uh, the chat says, if you still have trust in the New York Times after the Russian collusion fiasco, I don't know what else to say. Where did I ever say I trust the New York Times? I trust the New York Times in the sense that I think there will be one or two or three articles each day that I'll find interesting to read, right? So my trust in the New York Times is that I believe that 0.1%, uh, right, maybe 0.5% up to information may be useful to me, right? But you can't handle that point. You have to distort it. You have to, you know, deny what I'm saying and, and make up a straw man to try to attack it, right? I tried to read the New York Times reporting on the Russiagate thing, and it just gave me a headache. I, I tried innumerable times, not just New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. It just gave me a headache. It just seemed so petty and meaningless. So if you're going to say, oh, if one source of information has significant drawbacks, then you need to completely cut out that source of information, then there's absolutely nobody you can listen to. Every single source of information is deeply flawed. I'm deeply flawed. You are deeply flawed. Tucker Carlson is deeply flawed. Steve Saylor is deeply flawed. Nobody is exempt from being human. Nobody is exempt from having massive blind spots. Nobody is exempt from being fallible. Nobody is exempt from being wrong. So if your standard is they can never screw up, then everybody will fail you and you will be miserable and alone, right? So maybe you are miserable and alone. And when you're miserable and alone, then how will you find solace in life? The only way to find solace when you're miserable and alone is saying, ah, Everyone else is buying into the bullshit, man. But I see through the bullshit. I understand how the world really works. So yeah, I'm miserable and yeah, I'm alone. But that's because I see the forces of darkness. I see Satan in the world and I, I recognize the truth about how the world really works and other people simply can't handle the truth. And so you build yourself up with this narcissistic delusion that you really see through the bullshit that everyone else just buys into. And yeah, you're miserable. Yeah, you're alone. Yeah, you're ineffective. All right. Yeah, your life's in a downward spiral, but at least you see through the bullshit. Don't be brutally honest. The brutal part is what I'm worried about. The blunt part is what I'm worried about. And I'm especially worried that people who may be uh, struggling with their communication skills, who may be just learning to polish. I never said that I believe the New York Times more than Fox. I said Fox is a tabloid news operation, right? Fox aims at an average IQ of about 100. The New York Times is pitched to an average IQ of about 115. They're completely different genres. Now, I think Fox sometimes is more right and more correct than the New York Times, right? It's not a matter of I trust New York Times or I trust Fox or I don't trust anyone, right? You have to ass assess all information critically, understanding who is propounding the information, what's their agenda, how do they benefit, Right? Where are they basing their, their facts and their arguments from? And what are contrary points of view? Right? Their communication skills. We'll hear famous people like Charles Krauthammer, who was this incredibly gifted communicator. We'll hear him say, be blunt and be totally honest. Or they'll hear Ray Dalio, who's a billionaire, this incredibly successful businessman. They'll hear him say, be radically honest, radically transparent. And they'll run around being honest and blunt and radically transparent and brutal. 
And uh, Ricardo comes through with another New York Times link, a Michelle Goldberg column, The Unbelievable Stupidity of Ending Global COVID Aid. So she has a perspective that uh, we should not uh, stop helping the world against COVID. Okay, I, I don't don't find that terribly offensive. And I have a history with Michelle Goldberg. She wrote uh, one of the first long profiles of me for Salon Magazine, just absolutely adorable. She had this this voice made her sound like a 15-year-old girl, so I think she was in her mid-20s at the time. Uh, she wrote about me for two different articles. One was for Salon, one was for, for another publication, but I only had excellent experiences uh, interacting with uh, Michelle Goldberg. Now, she's on the left. I, I don't share, share her politics, but uh, she wrote such nice things about me. I mean, I don't, I don't agree with her colors, but so what? I, I don't, I don't read them. I, I don't, I don't read things that don't serve me. Right? Coming up with reasons why the New York Times sucks, I could come up with reasons why you suck. Right? I could come up with fifteen reasons why every single person I know sucks, including the best people I know. The best people I know have all sorts of vulnerabilities and flaws and blind spots. Right? No one is exempt from being fallible, from being human, and from sucking. Right? The most elevated, eloquent, learned, erudite rabbi, rabbis I know have areas where they suck. Brutally honest, and they're going to ruin all their relationships. I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want you to be brutally honest and go out there and ruin your career or ruin your relationships. And I think that is a real risk. Bluntness and brutal honesty are not generally uh, looked upon favorably in social interaction. And I'm encouraging what? Tact, diplomacy, social skill, which means being able to tell the truth, but being able to do so in a way that doesn't humiliate other people or damage them. Doing so, using communication to create psychological safety so that we can say things that are face-threatening. So, And uh, Ricardo has got another, wow, he's really bringing it today. How does the IQ of your intended audience affect the truth? of your statements. Well, the higher the IQ that you're speaking to, it allows for more complexity. So one reason that we have so much you know, ridiculous pronouncements on COVID from public health officials and politicians is that they're trying to speak to an audience that is at least half under an IQ of 100. So they use really broad generalizations because they understand that many of the people they're talking to can't handle any complexity. So that's why you have people walking around wearing a mask while they're walking outside or driving alone in their car and they're still wearing a mask. So the higher the IQ of your intended audience, that allows for more complexity. When you allow for more complexity, you have a better opportunity for approaching truth. But just because your audience has a higher IQ for one outlet than another does not mean that one outlet is necessarily going to be more truthful. So there's, there's no outlet that has a 100% sparkling record for truth. So you're going to find the New York Times is right in some things. The New York Post and Fox News is right in other things. In other things, it may well be the Daily Stormer has the best perspective. And other things, it may be Antifa who has the best perspective. And sometimes it's communist and sometimes it's fascist. Sometimes it's liberals. Sometimes it's conservatives. Sometimes it's paleocons. You never know from which direction truth is going to come. So that's why I'm not a big fan of erecting all these barriers against getting information and perspectives from other sources. What I'm suggesting is tact, 
which is the opposite of bluntness. It's not the opposite of honesty. So tact and diplomacy and social skill are not the opposite of honesty. But I think there's, there's a, a misperception, and some people think that that is the truth. I think some people believe that if we too carefully design the things that we say, if we think too carefully about what to say and how to say it, if we use too much tact, if we come indirectly to... And Ricardo says, complexity allows for convoluted rationalizations. Yes, it does. Right? Uh, higher IQ people don't automatically tell you the truth more often, more frequently than lower IQ people. So more complexity allows for more convoluted rationalizations. It also allows for getting closer to what is true. It all depends with what you do with the complexity, right? I, generally speaking, I prefer news, information, books, articles, entertainment that is, that is aimed at a minimum 110, 115 audience, right? I will partake in some 100 IQ stuff at times, right? I enjoy rock and roll music. Certain topics that were being disingenuous or that were even lying or that were engaged in manipulation. So I, th I think these are incorrect perceptions, but I really want to hear from you because I think people disagree about stuff like this. Some people believe that any use of indirectness or any use of... Uh, and Ricardo says, New York Times editorial staff has a clear track record of using complexity for real. Well, they certainly have a clear, clear track record of using their publication to promote the left. Absolutely true. But uh, sometimes left is right. Okay, I voted for George W. Bush both times. He was a disaster. He's probably the worst president in, in American history. And many of the left-wing critiques about George W. Bush were right. And, and that is that he was, you know, a lazy, irresponsible person to put into the presidential office, right? So sometimes the left is right. You have to stay open to different perspectives. All right, let's get a little something here on... Nick Fuentes from PPP. It's all sorted. It's all good. Shit happens. Arrested. And you guys got to back me up. Passing around this, this petition trying to get me arrested. And you guys got to back me up. Okay? You got to pray for me. You got to pray for angels to protect me. Mm. Uh, because I'm under a spiritual attack right now from women. <laughs> I also would like Help to sign it. the petition. Attack I so please be sure to sign the petition. I'll be posting the link in the live chat when we Fucking get into Gino. it. Uh, so we'll talk about that too. Should be a pretty good show. It's always something, man. If it's not the government or the banks or big tech or it's uh, gossip, drama, YouTubers Us. or it's traitors or it's swatting or it's DDoSing. If it's not any of that, it's witches casting spells on me. I just can't catch a break. Watch what he says here, Ashton. This Art. is nuts. I'm the prince with 10 million enemies. I'm the prince with a thousand enemies. But... It's what? a good thing because all I have all the right enemies, you know? Think about all the people that hate me. Watch this. It's Jews, liberals. Uh, <laughs> first of all, <laughs> holy the shit. First, the first thing on his list of enemies, it's the Jews, guys. And it's it's the witches and the Jews that are holding me down. Oh. Why won't anyone take me seriously as a political leader when I blame <laughs> witches and Jews right away? Holy shit. It's Jews, liberals, uh, women... Gay people, witches, it's all, it's all the right people. I think it's all the right people that don't like me. Fat people, ugly people, stupid people, people that are balding, uh, people that are poor, people that do drugs, <laughs> people that are atheists, Jews, 
uh, Holocaust survivors, women. Wait, wait, Holocaust survivors? <laughs> That's his enemies. Atheist. They Jews. survived. They are definitely his enemies. Uh, Holocaust survivors, women, rape, <laughs> rape victims. Whoa! And look at all the people that like me. Get ready. Strap in, folks. People that are accused of rape and. Whoa. <laughs> Wait, so the people, people that are accused of rape are his enemies? No, no, here, here, here. Dumbs. What? And look at all the people that like me. Look at all the people that like me. People that are accused of rape and- Why would- what the <laughs> fuck? Oh, at least- at least we've got the people that are accused of rape. <laughs> oh, that's a, I gotta say, I think uh, Fuentes is absolutely hilarious here. I- I mean, this is incredibly compelling entertainment content. I mean, it's- it's funny. All right. I think Fuentes is on a roll here. Holy That's a strong shit. constituency there. The Holy people who are rapists. They're, they're my biggest supporters. Do you believe that? He said that out loud? That's why it's funny. All right. He's funny here. I, I, I tip my yarmulke to Nick Fuentes here. Like, good on him. Like, good on this rant. Right, it's precisely because it's so transgressive that it's so entertaining. Good on you, Nick. Great job. Anti-Semites, um, you know, perhaps some <laughs> notable people accused of terrorism. You know, wait, hang on, <laughs> hang on. People that like people are accused of terrorism. The terrorists. This is the const this is the constituency to save America. Rapists and terrorists. <sighs> Ooh, so we're definitely going to restore the soul of the nation. The Rapist Terrorist Coalition, Andy. No, so I, I feel like I'm actually... No, that's a joke. And no, nobody that commits terrorism likes me. Patriots. Oh. Patriots, Christians, heroes, uh, soldiers. Hey, you're on the right track. Yeah. Americans, Russians. Don't let Beardson hear that, because I thought the whole motto of Beardson was fuck the troops. Yeah. That was what the weekly sweat was based off of, fuck the troops. And Nick himself has said fuck the troops and done like tons of skits anti-military. But now here he is eager to claim the military for some reason. Not sure about that one there, Nicholas, but. Oh. Muslims? I, you know, <sighs> I have all the right enemies and all the right friends. This is comedy gold. All right. I mean, good, good work, Nick. I, I, I think I, that rant, like, like many of his rants, is just absolutely inspired. Okay, what's going on with the National Justice Party? Justice for Jupiter! Justice for Jupiter! Justice for Jupiter! We're here outside the Cass County Courthouse to demand justice for the brutal torturing and murder of Daisy Paulson. They refuse to do anything about it. They're denying us our ability to be victims. They're denying us our very... Okay, so guess what? Even the, the National Justice Party can be right. And you may ask, oh, you know, what, what has the left ever, ever done? Well, there's this left-wing guy, Ronnie Goldman, who has come up with this brilliant analysis of conservative victimology. And he's used left-wing tools to show empathy for the people on the right. And here's just some... some excerpts from from his his recent uh, work so rightly or wrongly conservatives feel perennially under the heel of the liberal jackboot and i wanted to understand why i mean this is a leftist right and that's a a really worthy endeavor like why is it the conservatives always feel under the heel of the liberal jackboot justice for jupiter 
Justice for Jupiter! Justice for Jupiter! We're here outside the Cass County Courthouse to demand justice for the brutal torturing and murder of Daisy Paulson. They refuse to do anything about it. They're denying us our ability to be victims. They're denying us our very... Okay, so... Mike Enoch is an entertaining personality, all right? And the, the right stuff has some, occasionally some compelling points to make. They're sometimes quite funny, all right? And, I mean, give the devil his due, right? So sometimes the National Justice Party is going to be more right than the Republicans and the Democrats and the Democratic Socialists of America and Antifa. Sometimes Antifa is going to have a good point. Okay, and so Ronnie, Ronnie Goldman, all right, uh, came out with a book about his experience at Stanford University, came out with his book on Stanford is The Star Chamber of Stanford on the Secret Trial and Invincible Persecution of a Stanford Law Fellow. He's got two works in progress, one of them, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia, Man on the Left Producing Really Important Work. And here's an example of using a left-wing critique on the left. So it means stay of left liberal thought is that various forms of white male or heterosexual privilege blind us to pervasive subterranean inequalities which our norms just pass as completely neutral and then we say oh it's just natural it's just part of the ineluctable fabric of things well why is it then that people on the left are themselves blind to the social inequality from which conservatives claim to suffer right if there can be a subterranean white male privilege why not also a subterranean liberal left privilege, right? Maybe liberals' conservophobia may not be as crude or as strident as right-wing polemicists make it out to be, but a large part of liberal left thought is that racism, sexism, and homophobia need not be overt or conscious, right? These bigotries are said to operate below the threshold of awareness. They operate on an insidious structural level that outruns the beliefs and intentions of individual actors. Well, why could there not be an anti-conservative bigotry that works along similar lines? If there can be a structural racism, why can there not be a structural liberalism or a structural leftism that oppresses conservatives despite their formal political equality? Right? This is a very sophisticated, thoughtful left-wing critique of the left. Right? The left uses sophisticated critical theory in its ceaseless battles with racism, sexism, homophobia, and bourgeois philistinism well why not a critical theory of the right whose deconstruction of the left mirrors the left's deconstruction of wider society right? especially its deconstruction of conservatives why not lay out the conservative grievance right so take take uh, same-sex marriage all right so amy wax argues that while conservatives ill-articulated Fears about the perils of same-sex marriage may seem unfounded to liberals. These vague premonitions of erosion and unraveling may be reliable indicators of the subtle shifts in mores that normalizing homosexuality could presage. So the author, Ronnie Goodman, he was encouraged by his left-wing professors at Stanford Law to pursue his thesis on conservative victimology, they, they were very enthusiastic about it as long as they believed that Ronnie was doing it ironically. As soon as they realized that Ronnie was doing it unironically, seriously, then they completely turned against him. 
right? So from a left-wing perspective, traditional values are illusory, they're subjective, right? But e even so, they're still vital to the moral identities of at least half of Americans, right? So same-sex marriage may not threaten heterosexual marriage in a direct, obvious way, but cumulatively, you can certainly make a point that it erodes the frameworks of moral meaning that sustain vital human connections and conventions. So people on the left and people in the center embrace same-sex marriage as just a rational extension of their universalistic commitments to equality, right? And so they, they send reservations about same-sex marriage to the same low moral dustbin as discussed with miscegenation. Now, conservatives are less concerned with the syllogism of universal moral principles, right? Conservatives are much more attuned to what cord logic fails to capture, the subtle, often irrational springs of human motivation that precariously undergird social cooperation. Right? These feelings do not necessarily respect the abstractions of liberal rationalism, but they are real all the same. So Ronnie Goodman's professor, Barbara Freed, she, she had this intuition that there is just something indeterminate to liberalism, meaning that what liberals presume is the only valid application of their principles may well be a parochial cultural preference. Right? So why conservative claims of cultural oppression amount to more than hollow ad hominems against the banal human foibles of liberals? Like why do liberals seem less agitated than conservatives by difference and dissent? Why do liberals appear unconcerned with how their next door neighbors go about their lives? Why do conservatives feel threatened, right, by these phantasmal assaults on order and decency everywhere? So Ronnie Goodman's left-wing professors at Stanford Law were at once incredulous and absolutely fascinated by conservative claims of cultural oppression. So she wanted to dismiss conservatives as benighted authoritarians, but she was fascinated by Ronnie Goodman's critique that the liberal consensus was one-sided and simplistic. So we now have a ruling class, a cosmopolitan new class of well-schooled, left-leaning knowledge workers who are predisposed towards an unhealthy self-consciousness, towards stilted, convoluted speech, towards an inhibition of play, imagination, and passion, and they feel this continual pressure for expressive discipline, right? Meaning they want to restrict speech. Now, this pressure to restrict speech is part of the secularization of an age-old religious drive, right? It's an intellectual variant of a traditional spiritual aspiration to rise above animal impulse toward this purified state of heightened self-possession and self-control. And if you can't match it, then, then you're just a bad person and you need to be disciplined. You're probably saying 40. Height spaces, heights approach, well, and a bunch of the content. So we're going to talking really about these days. Reflected on the horrors. A really good way to force me to stop and to acknowledge how weak my mind is and how much stronger it needs to be if I want to have a role in this world of making positive change. I think about Nazi Germany and what it means to be a hero in those times, what it means to uh, be a person that can reverse the decline into evil. I think it's much more difficult than people realize. I think it means standing against the masses. It requires a kind of mental toughness, mental fortitude that I don't think I'm ready for and I need to be. Most likely, hopefully, I will never have to play a role of any importance. But if I do have that opportunity, I need to be able to step up. That's Thinking about Nazi Germany. Yes, I agree, Lex. A terrible time. Thinking about the hero you had to be to stand and how to develop that mental 
toughness because in the future you might need to be that hero that disclaimer at the end it felt like half-hearted you know probably i won't be needed to do that mm. in lex's defense i think these are thoughts that many 14 year old boys have and if your brain works in a certain way he's very open and honest in letting people know what he's thinking i mean let's face it listening to rise of the third reich while you're jogging it would be heavy going but not if you're like lex because your brain would be like these nazis are doing such terrible things i gotta be stronger in case i need to fight future nazis like i don't want to be physically weak oh you're being overly mean I no know no i'm not he sure horned it in not me he said you know, <laughs> know. running is fun running's all right but it's hard you know what else is hard? <laughs> the the he did it, not me. I'm not being mean. I'm saying I think that's what Lex thinks. Okay, but many people have reflected on the horrors of Nazi Germany and totalitarian regimes generally, and how everyone basically goes along with it. It's very rare the kind of people that don't go along with all of the badness and reflected on whether or not they would be the kind of person who went along with it or not. I think that's what's going on in Lex's mind. That's what studying the 30s, the Great Depression on the United States side, and the decline into a state of terror on the European side. Really makes me think. I know this is a day in the life video, but uh, that's also my days. I, as often as possible, try to think deeply about history, about the state of the world today, about my own mind, about the science that I'm fascinated with, which is the science of intelligence and the science of engineering intelligence. That's just a sincerity. <laughs> There's a lot of sincerity there. Okay, Matt. Jimmy the Cricket, listen to me. You listen to what's his face? Who was that guy? The person who survived the Holocaust, the concentration camp. Uh, uh, the positive psychologist. Frankel. Victor Frankl. Frankl. Yeah, Frankl. Right. I've read his book and it's very powerful. It does make you self-reflective, but I don't know. You, of course, compare your situation to it, but I'm not so sure I would adopt Lex's pose about seeing myself as the potential heroic figure in the future fighting mm. the Nazis. Here's the thing, Chris. You're a cynical sophisticate, and I don't think, from the little I've heard of Lex's things, I think what he emotes about these things comes across as rather cringe and platitudinous and naive. Yes. Cringe, platitudinous, and naive seems to be a pretty good uh, summary of the Lex Friedman that I have heard. All right, what's going on with the National Justice Party? June 4th, 2021 started like any other day. Daisy Jupiter Paulson, our friend Rob's daughter, was on her way to visit her mother and grab some work clothes in the morning. Darkness still gripping some of the sky. As she skateboarded, she was stalked like prey from the shadows for God knows how long. Then the shadows came alive and Jupiter was ripped from her skateboard. For 25 grueling minutes, she was grabbed, she was beaten, her clothes were torn, she was choked and stabbed over 20 times for 25 minutes. After trying to suffocate her, her body was left on the ground to die. She was eventually brought to the hospital where she spent four days in a coma, alone in her mind, all by herself. Her family called out to her, but she couldn't respond. They pleaded for a miracle, but none came. For them, it was the worst four days of their lives. For her, an eternity had passed, isolated from the world, from her friends, from her family, and from her people. Why would anyone hate a little girl like Daisy? Her family loved her so much, and so did we. Now we're here outside the Cass County Courthouse in Fargo, North Dakota to demand justice for the brutal torturing and murder of Daisy Paulson. Not just by the monster Arthur Cauley, 
Her life was also stolen by the very system and people elected to protect her, the people who brought Kali here. The most brutal attack in North Dakota history couldn't even be mentioned by the governor himself in the last State of the State address, despite the family pleading and reaching out to him. Jupiter was stalked and attacked for 25 minutes. It was not a random attack, like the media said. April 2019, a boy identified as Landon, five years old, was thrown from a balcony by a stranger at the Mall of America. 2020, Cannon Hinton, a five-year-old boy in North Carolina, was ran up to and then gunned down by a neighbor. Cash Gurnan, age four, May 2021, Cash was abducted from his bedroom and found dead in the street, several blocks away in the morning, stabbed to death. They were not random, they are part of a pattern of hate. Not only have police failed in their duties, the judicial system as well are purposely and maliciously disregarding precedent and common decency. They're allowing Kali and his anti-white establishment back defense to change their plea in an effort to cop insanity and avoid deportation. Everyone knows that Arthur's lying about being crazy. Judge Irby thinks he knows better than the court-appointed psychologist and wants a second opinion. The Fargo City Commission passed hate crime legislation as a way to condemn whites and only whites as racist and as a way to supposedly stop violence. The latter part didn't work. Along with all the other well-documented anti-white blood libels hatefully peddled by the commission, they themselves declared open season on whites by inciting violence against us by singling us out as the hateful ones. They themselves refer to this tactic as stochastic terrorism. And it got Jupiter Paulson killed! The following is a poem written by Jupiter Paulson. The title of the poem is Rain. I wish I was the rain because I would actually have a purpose. I wish I could douse the trees and plants to give them growth. I wish I could make the rivers flow more smoothly. I wish I could be buried deep in the ground and provide for people, though they don't have much thought about me. I wish I could go unexpectedly and be free within the air and the ground, but I'm not. Instead, kids get upset that I ruin their plans and others curse because they have to walk and get soaked. Some nature being unhappy because I flood the area that I wanted to take care of most and ruin everything I tried to fix. I wish I was the rain so I could be free, free to be whoever I wanted and free to be wherever I went. I wish kids were happy to see me and I wish construction wasn't difficult because of me, but it is. Many people hate the rain and that's okay because believe it or not, I would already be used to it. Anti-white! 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 
Every bureaucrat, politician, judge, police officer knows that they are incentivized to reduce black crime and increase white crime. Everybody knows all of the gun crimes plaguing our country, the blood in the streets, the murders, constant every day. Everybody knows who's doing it. Black people are committing murders every day in this country. Jupiter Paulson was one of the most tragic and the one that struck this community. But it's happening in communities across this country and this system because of the political incentives created by the Black Lives Matter movement, by the Jewish power system. They refuse to do anything about it. They're denying us our ability to be victims. They're denying us our very humanity. If you can't be a victim, you're not even really human, are you? If we can't politicize it, that means we don't have rights. Whatever it is, it's political. The way you stop things are political. The way you pressure the state, it's political. We need our rights. We demand our rights. We demand this state, which promised them to us as our birthright, give them to us. If they're not going to give them to us voluntarily, we're going to have to make them. We're going to have to make them through political pressure and activism so they can't face us in public unless we get our civil rights. We are not violent. You don't see us burning down stores. You don't see us breaking shop windows. You don't see us terrorizing people in the street because that's not what we're about. We're decent people. We don't need to destroy things to make our point. We understand how that really works. That's not political action. That is terrorism, racial terrorism. And it's why the system is totally enthralled to anti-white, pro-black, pro-Jewish activists that actually just hate us. White people white. White people white. White people white. And every one of these, every one of these corrupt officials is simply a coward. They're simply a careerist coward. It's inconvenient for their next promotion, for their next raise, for whatever their ambitions are, whatever job they want to get next. It's inconvenient for them to make a big deal, to actually deliver justice to Robert Paulson and his grieving family and their community. Because Black Lives Matter, George Soros, and other Jewish Zionist oligarchs are controlling the justice system and not letting them provide justice for white communities. You provide justice for white people, you can kiss your next promotion goodbye. That is what is going on. Just like in Waukesha, when we went there after Daryl Brooks, who had anti-white rap songs, anti-white statements on social media, statements that he wanted to punch the white people, even the old ones, they wanted to cross that under the rug. It was inconvenient. Six people dead. 60 people injured, and it was just an inconvenience. They probably want to give him an insanity plea too. They probably will try and get out of it that way if they can. The media is uninterested in the case. They want to cover it up. President Biden, he didn't make a visit to talk to that community, not that they really wanted to talk to him, but he didn't even make the gesture. Nobody wants to acknowledge that we even exist. If the prosecution really wanted to ensure Arthur Cawley is punished to the fullest extent of the law, federal hate crime charges would be their strategy. They don't want that. Federal hate crime charges put the death penalty on the table, and we demand Arthur Cawley be punished to the fullest extent of the law. The FBI were too busy spying on white Americans who did nothing wrong at PTA meetings to stop any real crime. The anti-white government is terrorizing every decent person in this country. They're the terrorists. Well, no more. We want justice. Justice for Jupiter. Justice for Jupiter. Justice for Jupiter. Okay, so when it comes wanted, to old school, you wanted a a more sophisticated understanding of what uh, what these blokes were talking about, then you'd want to read the the works of Ronnie Goldman. Now, if you simply remove the explicit anti-Jewish rhetoric, I, I know among Orthodox Jews, for the rest of it, support for what they're talking about in that video would be between probably five and twenty times what it would be in the general white population. So uh, 
Orthodox Jews tend to be more right-wing than the average white population. They tend to be more supportive of people like Donald Trump. They tend to be more supportive of immigration crackdown. They tend to be more supportive of crime crackdown. They tend to be more supportive of whites organizing in their own interests. So there, there are plenty of Jews who would have been happy to sign on to support much of what the National Justice Party there was talking about. But uh, the National Justice Party doesn't actually want to make a positive difference in the world. It just wants to act out and scream and cry like an infant that, you know, we're victims, we're victims, we're victims. All right. They're on a self-destructive trend. All right. They, they are driven by forces they don't understand, but essentially it amounts to self-destruction. And so... They will strut around filled with sound and fury for, for a brief time. But uh, they, they, movements like them always seem to self-destruct. Why? Because of the very poor quality of people who join such movements. Uh, technologists, crypto millionaires. It's, uh, it's, it's all, it's all Technologists. Anyway, so we'll get into that. It's just, you know, it's always, uh, we're always at war with somebody. This time it's, uh, it's once again, it's these these freaking women, stupid bitch, it's ugly, it's ugly bitch, trying See to get you. arrested. Oh wow, what a clip there, folks! I got twelve-hour suspension on Twitter for mentioning that clip. Hyping that clip. <laughs> I was hyping the clip up, and I got the, the suspension right, there. Well, folks. here's the third clip you collected today. Let's have a look. Uh, yeah, this is called "Nick is a Real Human." Are you right? You ready for this? And uh, so Laponia says it really self-destruction when someone else destroys you. Well, no one else is destroying the type of people who support TRS, right? They, they destroy themselves, all right? Uh, drug use is rampant. You know, alcohol abuse is rampant. All sorts of destructive behavior is rampant. And if you're convinced that, say, white people are destroying themselves, uh, white people are being destroyed, well, that's primarily by other whites, right? It's not, uh, not non-whites who are dr you know, destroying whites, it's white self-destruction. There we go. So, uh, some context. He's talking about being banned. Uh, the he had a movie premiere planned, and he was banned from the the fucking what's it called the the uh, venue. Here we go. I mean, what the heck, man? It just sucks. I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of just getting screwed over. We just can't catch a break. You know, I was <laughs> talking to a friend of mine this weekend. Uh, I was up in Obviously. Detroit for Milo's confirmation. The friend was Milo. I was talking to Milo. <laughs> I was up. And uh, Laponia says the Sackler family super white. Well, guess what? No one is forced to take opioids. No one is forced to abuse drugs. Right? No one is forced to sniff cocaine or to inject themselves with heroin. What type of people abuse drugs? Self-destructive people. I've been Detroit for Milo's uh, confirmation. Imagine talking to Milo, like having Milo as a trusted confidant. When Milo Yiannopoulos has a blackmail hard drive that he literally holds up called The Vault, it's orange, and says that he keeps blackmail on every single person he ever does business with. Like, imagine still doing business with him and trusting Milo Yiannopoulos. And imagine still believing in Milo after Lauren's documentary this week as well, where it was revealed that Milo was like the ultimate snake bastard that kept his finger in every single pie yeah. and blackmailed every single person that he ever had a business relationship with because he's a piece of shit. Imagine, Nick just openly is like, yeah, I'm... I'm working with Milo. Yeah, it was Milo that got us uh, Marjorie Taylor Green for the conference. And, like, and I don't and know stole... if Milo's a friend you want to have. 
he stole a hundred k from like that the the white privilege grant and then blamed it on that girl margaret and Lepani says, come on, bro, doctors prescribe those drugs and then cut them off, causing them to become smack addicts. Well, guess what? Doctors prescribed those drugs to millions of people, and most of them did not become addicts. So why was it that a certain destructive core be became addicts while other people used them as prescribed and moved on, right? When you're self-destructive, your form of self-destruction may take many paths, right? You may drive recklessly. You may use drugs or alcohol recklessly. You may have sex recklessly. You may conduct yourself recklessly in all sorts of areas of life. But people who are bent on destroying themselves, right, are going to find opportunities to do so. Bro, Margette or whatever the hell her name is, right? Like, it's just like so fucking nuts. We'll watch some clips on that on Friday and hopefully have her on and some people from church militant and uh and i was talking to milo and i'm like you know what like i'm just it's not confirmed by the way she'll be on on friday but she said i talked to her yesterday and she said hopefully soon so we're gonna plan that yeah. out yeah i'm sick of it man i'm sick of getting canceled i'm sick of getting kicked out of things i'm sick of getting banned from fucking things i'm a human being damn it i'm a human being and by Very the way debatable. i'm a better human being. made in a test tube pal <laughs> no if it was up to god you wouldn't be here right now you're a man-made horror beyond anyone's comprehension an abomination onto god eldridge i don't know if we can call you a human being yeah eldridge abomination you being <laughs> than most people okay i'm a genius i'm rich and i'm Very handsome debate. i should have it better than everybody not worse so i was having kind of a go-off moment i'm a real human being uh -huh. i'm a real ass good ass human being and i keep getting banned from stuff fuck you fuck you we're doing our event anyway and uh, I'm accused of shilling for the Sacklers, all right? There's no way that you can interpret what I was just saying as shilling for the Sacklers. I, I would I would wager I've read more books on the opioid destruction pandemic and the, the perfidy of the Sackler family than 99% uh, of people who may listen or, or watch the, the stream. So I read about four books on it, right? I spent way over 100 hours reading about this horror story. Right. I, I'm glad to see the, the Sackler family brought low. I think they, what they, they did was heinous. But I'm just, I'm like, really? So I've, ha I've had it up to here. I've had it up to here. You know what happens next? You don't even want to know what happens next. Whoa. So, but that's okay. <laughs> but that's okay. All right. It's okay, because, you know, we're tough and we're smart, but it's a little bit irritating, a little bit frustrating. Been doing this for five years, and it doesn't get any easier. That'll, that'll tell you. It gets bigger. It gets better. We're making more money. we got more people, but it's like, Do you? damn, I wish you could just... They're not. They're getting no. less people and less money in. Okay. So we, we've, uh, we've delivered the, the hate porn tonight. We've uh, had, had a well-rounded show. Let's get a little more from decoding the but gurus. He's sharing the thoughts of many young people. But he's 35. <laughs> well, look, it's fine. It's fine. Whatever is you come across material, that's all right. But it does feel with like Joe Rogan and Lex Redman and a bunch of the other people that just a little bit of an indulgence towards people who are not grad school stoners. They're like people in their 30s and Joe Rogan's case in their 50s. And it's a little bit like they've just started to reflect 
on the nature of suffering and considering world history. I knew the Nazis were bad as soon as I heard about them. As soon as I heard what they got up to. In secondary school, we were learning about the Nazis. So, Like that comedian said, but the more I hear about this Hitler guy, the less I like yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> just, I don't know. We are being mean. But look, so, Matt, let's turn to something else that goes on in that day. So, you know, we, we talked about him being a techno monk. I find it's a really great, intense way to get the exercise in without taking too much away from your day. Pardon the- I don't know anyone who talks more about how criticism makes not just individuals better, but groups better. So I want there to be accurate criticism of Jews, of Orthodox Jews, of non-Jews, of black people, of gays, uh, of straights, of Christians, right? We need accurate criticism. And this modern mood, this modern movement, this modern policy that all sorts of groups are off limits from criticism, such as Jews, blacks, uh, gays, uh, trans. I mean, that's absolutely insane. It's, it's really bad for us as a society. It breeds natural and justified anger, and it's really bad for those groups, right? If I was protected from criticism, I would be awful. I would just be a horror show. I'd be even worse than I am mind, heart on the body, but good for the soul. By the way, all of this is fasted, so it's been about 14, 16 hours since I've eaten last. I feel great. No food, uh, water, and I've just taken a salt pill in case I do run for a long time. It's important to have electrolytes in the body. I love exercising fasted and an empty stomach. Focuses the mind. I can actually perform extremely well. So he fasted, takes a salt pill if he needs it. Some people do this. This is what people do, right? And Lex has a theory for why that might be. I just personally enjoy working out fasted. So I guess based on my diet, but also on my psychology, I perform best when I'm fat adapted, which means I'm a low carb diet. It's probably deep somewhere in my Eastern European genetics that uh, my ancestors will go without food for long periods of time and then have to wrestle a bear to the death intensely. So it seems like this is the kind of thing I enjoy doing, not eating and then doing intense, focused, hard workouts. Makes me feel great. I enjoy it both physically and mentally. Well, that's lucky. And I've heard him mention that thing about Eastern European genetics on multiple interviews in alert context. And so I don't think it is just the throwaway line that suggested there. It would be like me inheriting the blood of the Celtic warriors of the past. That's why I'm so fiery online, Matt. Actually, that explains a lot. Yeah, it's why the <laughs> chips, it's potatoes. My people, Matt. <laughs> we hunt potatoes with sport. So yeah, just there's a little bit of genetic. And Ricardo gets to the nub of things. Luke, what have you learned about yourself from being criticized for your prestige media addiction? I haven't heard anyone make like a halfway decent point yet, right? All it is is bullying. All right, coming up with some articles that you don't approve of in the New York Times is not exactly a compelling argument for why, you know, I find some benefit from some articles in the New York Times. Like, you're trying to make the argument that people should close themselves off from all sorts of information and instead go to 4chan, right? I will, uh, this is the hill I will die on. You recommend 4chan. I say for the for most people, most of the time, they are better served reading the New York Times than 4chan. In some issues, in, in some times, in some circumstances, for some people, they're better off reading 4chan than the New York Times. Generally speaking, most people, most of the time, would be better off reading the New York Times. 4chan is an absolute sore. It, it's, it's horrible. So I, I haven't even, I, I'm not even aware of, of a of any moderately compelling argument to not not pay attention to the New York Times or to the Washington Post or to not subscribe to them. So where else would I go for my news? You recommend 4chan. 4chan is filthy, right? 4chan is horrible for you. Now, 
at times, right? 4chan may provide you know, useful information and, and useful perspectives. Overall, it's a horrible place and it has a horrible effect on people. So yeah, I, I'm happy to, to die on this hill that the New York Times, generally speaking, for most people is a superior source of information to the filth that pervades 4chan. Essentialism in there. Yeah, I think it speaks to, again, a sort of a naive understanding of how that stuff works. But yeah, anyway. Takes a shower, cold shower. Of course. After the exercise, when I jump into the shower, which contains the moment of the day that I dread the most, which is the first minute that I take a cold shower, I have a bunch of songs that I know the one minute mark of that I usually put on. It could be as cliche and cheesy as uh, the Rocky soundtrack, We're Gonna Fly Now. I think it's the, the first solo is the one minute mark. He's really doing a lot to counteract this techno monk image. So we've got cold showers, fasting, mantras about death, reflecting on the nature of Hitler and the Third Reich mm. as you run. And yeah, it's a punishing regime. And if you calculate it all out, he sort of works for 12 hours a day. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And spends really most of the rest of the time doing either exercise or part of his regime, contemplating death or whatever. I don't want to cast dispersions, but I do wonder if Lex does this five days a week or mm. two days a week or like week in, week out. You have to wonder a little bit. There's no masturbation time. <laughs> there's, there's, there's... <laughs> Where does he do his drinking, Chris? That's oh, I well, he does cover that. Uh, so listen mm. to this. Also, this time is for when I don't feel great, I can just lay down and watch some Netflix, watch some documentaries on YouTube, hang out with friends. If I had a girlfriend, this would be girlfriend time. Netflix and chill. For now, I'm Okay, so Michelle Goldberg, I went here, I went Brooke, any criticism of her? She wrote in Salon, July 13, 1999, the Matt Drudge of porn, a tortured conservative Jew dishes internet gossip on the industry he lost to hate. Luke Ford spends most of his time around porn stars, but he has a crush on Wendy Shalit, the neocon ingenue author of A Return to Modesty, Discovering the Lost Virtue. Last time we talked, he had passed the afternoon skinny dipping with X-rated actresses Kendra Jade and Shelley Pearson. Yes, that's true. But he was still mooning over a recent encounter with the poster girl for virtue and virginity. Published in commentary at only 19, he said dreamily, I was really curious to see what she looked like, so I went to her reading. She's a little cutie. I kind of fancied her. I think we'd make a good couple. Miss Modesty and Mr. Pornography. He's not kidding. Ford, one of the most controversial figures in the porn universe, is a man torn between twin obsessions, hardcore sex and conservative Judaism. So this is uh, Michelle Goldberg writing in a Salon. He has elevated moral and spiritual schizophrenia to surreal proportions, and the split is most obvious in the two websites that he spends his life running. On LukeFord.com, he operates as the Matt Drudge of the XXX industry, tirelessly reporting scandals, news, gossip, innuendo, and minutia, earning $42,000 a year in ad revenue and the loathing of most of porn's major players. In his spare time, though, the sex industry's most notorious muckraker and the son, bizarrely, of a Seventh-day Adventist evangelical preacher maintains DennisPrager.net, a site devoted to conservative writer, Jewish theologian, and right-wing radio host Dennis Prager. I view porn, adultery, premarital sex, all forms of sexual expression outside of marriage as sinful, meaning against God's will, says Ford, a wry, blandly handsome 33-year-old. Let me stress that I am single. I've never been married. The Lord has not granted me the gift of chastity. Do not fool myself that what I'm doing is okay by God or my religion. Really open that these are the ideals I believe in, and in various ways I do not live up to them. C'est la vie. I get therapy once or twice a week for 90 minutes a session. He's a hypocrite, and he knows it, revels in it. In fact, Ford is so blunt about his personal shortcomings, he disarms criticism by cheerfully concurring with everything his enemies say about him. And they say a lot. 
because as much as the biz hates to admit it, everyone in the adult film world reads him. Can't find someone in this business who's never heard of Luke Ford, says Atlanta pornographer Mike South. Luke has done more research into this business than most of the people who lived through the 1970s and 80s. There's a Matt Drudge in the porn industry. It's Luke Ford, hands down. He's very similar to Matt Drudge. Came out of nowhere, created a name for himself in a very short time. The difference is that Luke may be even more vicious than Matt Drudge's. Ford's methods are slash and burn, often mean-spirited and journalistically dubious. His website is an odd melange of rambling daily reports on the shenanigans of actresses, directors, and producers, exposés on industry corruption and torturous self-analysis and satire. Also included are capsule biographies of nearly everyone who's ever taken her clothes off in front of a camera. And Ford's own take on every issue related to the business, from child porn and bestiality to industry racism and mob involvement. One of his most notorious assaults on the business, Ford published a list that contains the real names of over 300 porn people. Ford's profile in the business skyrocketed last year when he broke the story about porn star Mark Wallace being HIV positive. Like Matt Drudge's early stories of Monica Lewinsky's Blue Dress, at first Ford's report, reports were taken as evidence that he'd become a dangerously irresponsible rumor monger. Four months later, Wallace tasted, tested positive under mounting pressure. A colleague had dra- dragged him to the clinic. To the, this day, many in the industry claim that Ford got lucky. Last month, Ford published his first book, A History of X. It's startling, given Ford's blatant hostility toward porn, that anyone in the industry talks to him. Fascinating thing about Ford, though, is that he is so charming that even those who have every reason to despise him are often won over when they're in his presence. Ford has the gift of making you feel like you alone, of all the idiots in the world, really get it, are really on his wavelength. Last year, I was at the Adult Video News Awards, says Mike South. I was talking to a lady in the business. She'd never met Luke. She wanted to know who he was because she was livid about something he put on his site about her. Luke comes up, I introduce them, and she immediately goes into a very obvious attack mode. Within two minutes, she's sitting in Luke's lap. (laughs) He's one of those angst-ridden guys that draws women in. They want to ease his suffering. He he might lay on the charm to get people to open up. We good-looking people use that all the time. Is essentially an unhappy person based on the work he does. Uh, Paul Fishbein, publisher of the Adult Video News, the industry trade magazine. He's a really charming, nice guy when you meet him and talk to him, but he's not trustworthy. Besides being charming, Ford is also smart, though he believes he's not as smart as he used to be. Ford was an economics major at UCLA in 1988 when he grew ill with chronic fatigue syndrome. In an email that Ford posted to his site, his sister apologizes to the world for her brother by attributing his odd proclivities to his long illness. In the mid-80s, he contracted glandular fever, which wiped out his energy and therefore his activity, she writes. It is accepted by medical science that glandular fever caused by the Epstein-Barr virus is often followed by depression. What still remains controversial is the diagnostic entity chronic fatigue syndrome. But whatever the label, I saw my brother slide from an energetic and fun-loving boy to an invalid. Luke, in some ways, is not the boy he used to be. Seems to lack a degree of insight and balance in his life. He was brought up in a very balanced, loving, and Christian family. Ford was nearly bedridden for six years, during which time he discovered Judaism. 
since I was sick, I've only been going at 7 or 8%. I've lived my life in a vice since I was 21, Ford says. I'm not as mentally sharp as I was before I got sick. I'm not able to be an economist, which is what I wanted to be. Thus, he justifies his career choice in purely pragmatic terms. See, Michelle Goldberg, such an insightful writer. However distasteful writing on porn is, it really beats doing temp work as an administrative assistant. Professionally, I'm on a good gig. I found my niche. I have thousands of readers getting most of my needs met. I'm writing about my life, making decent money. I don't have to work that hard and have tremendous freedom. Now, Ford knows that professional convenience isn't the only thing driving him. I think part of the reason I do this would be some deep, dark, psychological, Freudian desire to return to the womb. He says half facetiously. There's something tremendously compelling to me about, God forbid, pussy. I'm fascinated by women's sexuality. Porn is a male fantasy of female sexuality. I'm still spending a lot of my time interacting with fairly attractive women, albeit IQ challenged. So there is a deep, dark psychological attraction there. Not that Ford is that popular with porn starlets. Says he's only had sex with two X-rated actresses. Anyway, he really wants to get married, and he believes that once he ties the knot, he'll leave his promiscuous ways behind. I'm tired of the life of tawdry blowjobs from porn stars. I want to settle down. One of these days, the Lord will give me the strength to turn my back on such sin. He says this jocularly, self-mockingly, but he seems to mean it. On one level, Ford wants to hang out with porn stars. On another, he wants to bring down the porn industry. The boy has a messiah complex, says Roger Jacobs, former porn screenwriter. Jacobs describes Ford as being on a suicide mission against the adult entertainment industry, the most visible sniper in a lone shooting spree against easy targets. Mark Kearns, features editor at Adult Video News, says he's the son of an evangelical minister and he's converted to Orthodox Judaism, each of the most fundamentalist of religions. Both are very anti-sex. He is fascinated by sex, fascinated by people who are willing to perform sex on camera, and he wants to write about it, but he also hates it. I think he's fulfilling the requirements of his religion by attempting to destroy the porn industry. I don't regard the industry with respect, Ford says. I don't regard it as something worthy of nurturing. If my writing helps anti-porn hysteria and activism, fine. It would not bother me if porn were banned. Censorship is one legitimate response to the rise of pornography. I would not shed many tears if the porn industry was carted off to jail tomorrow, and I don't think we'd be a worse society for it. Ford loathes Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, but he loathes the propaganda of the porn business more, and he's disgusted that so many people have fallen for it. Talking about the self-described feminist porn of Candida Royale and the theories of pro-sex professors like Linda Williams and Laura Kipnis, Ford's usually mellow, self-deprecating tone turns angry. I loathe political correctness. I loathe piety, particularly coming from the porn industry, he says. He growls. It's a filthy industry. I'm not going to take First Amendment lessons from whores. I'm not going to take sociological lessons and psychological insights about the human condition from pretentious pornographers. This PC, academized, femme porn boosting approach nauseates me. It's a laugh. Women do not buy this stuff. Men buy this stuff, generally single men. The whole purpose of porn is for men to jack off. It does not have entertainment, political, or artistic value. It is lowbrow, hard on fuel, period. Ford professes respect for feminist porn stars and directors, but he thinks they distort the true face of the business. Candida Royale, any sprinkle, Jane Hamilton, Gloria Leonard are all intelligent, thoughtful, kind, and considerate. They're among the better persons in the industry, but as pornographers, they count for zero. Their product does not sell. They do not add a distinctive wrinkle to porn that opens up a new market. The femme porn market is a myth, a nice guy front that the industry presents to the public. 
Ford is steeped in the Judeo-Christian idea that people are wicked and need to keep their sinful impulses in check. Study of porn shows that men are just bad news, and the primary task facing society is what do you do with the men? Whenever men have been able to, they've raped en masse. What you see in mainstream hardcore pornography is simply an acting out of what your father, boyfriend, husband, brother, or son thinks about much of the time. The more time I spend in the porn industry, the more reverence I have for Judaism, for the Judeo-Christian tradition of forcing the male sexual genie into the marital bottle, to quote Dennis Prager. Ford is both a porn insider and someone who shares the values of middle America, and he's routinely trotted out to bash the industry. I'm happy to be used by people who want to bash the porn industry. I don't think it's something I need in any way to protect. By its very nature, almost everyone who dislikes the porn industry can't spend that much time around it. Only a twisted, multiple personality person like myself can do that, so I'm happy to play along. Probably some validity to porn's views on the porn industry. He's so transparent in his self-criticism, so brutally honest about himself that it gives him a certain credibility. Whatever his agenda is, at least he's upfront about it. Even Roger Jacobs agrees with some of Ford's conclusions. I've never met a more collectively dysfunctional lot of people in my life than during my seven years in the business. The mainstream entertainment industry is neurotic. People in porn are partially psychotic. Says Mike South, I think Luke's been good for the business. He has thrown open a lot of doors and shined light on questionable people, questionable business practices. Not much of anything in this business escapes Luke. I trust the majority of what he writes. That Ford is so critical of the industry means that those inside take him more seriously. It makes him more credible. There are a lot of people in the business who are far from evil, a lot of good people, but there are evil people in the business. If Luke says everyone in the business is wonderful, he's just another industry apologist. Instead, he calls it as he sees it. Mike South thinks that Ford is getting over on all the porn outsiders who take him seriously because his religious views mirror their own. I wouldn't say it's 100% shtick, says South, but at least 50% of it is. What he is trying to do there is to echo the feelings of people reading his site. He's doing what he does best, trying to disarm them and fit in. Don't you think he is smart enough to be playing these people? Ford is comforting to outsiders because he's willing to give up the dirt on the porn business while professing to hate himself for being so close to it. He makes readers feel like he wishes he could live in the dull mainstream world with the rest of us. The South believes that Ford's self-loathing is just part of his game. I don't think he hates himself at all, says Mike South. Quite the contrary. I think sometimes he goes home, thinks about the things that have happened, and he laughs at the people in this business because they are so easily duped. Doing just the uh, Netflix part of that. Anyway, today's deep work, but starting now on any particular day, this is where the possibilities of chaos are wide open. So I can just do whatever the hell I want. I got some Jack Daniels. I got some Stoli Smirnoff vodka. I got some peanut butter flavored whiskey. So I don't drink very often, pretty rarely actually, but the possibility is always there. The night is always full of possibilities. I'm a big fan of a random adventure and just being lost in it. This is the time for that to happen. Uh, Ricardo says, is blogging about the porn industry a life that works? No, it is not, right? And I remember how struck I was when porn agent Reagan Center made the point to me that as long as you're primarily writing about the porn industry, no decent woman will have anything to do with you. So no, definitely not part of a life that works. To look forward, subscribe to the New York Times in 1999. No, but I read it. As soon as I started going online regularly in 1997, started reading the New York Times. You didn't have to subscribe to the New York Times until just a few years ago. You could essentially just read it for free. Has anyone ever been tired of receiving blowjobs? Well, they start to lose their allure after the first few decades, bro.
Yeah, I think the chances of that happening <laughs> yeah. in your apartment with Netflix. It's like my, I have a bottle of whiskey in the room now. Been there for like a year, but every day the possibility that I just consume it and go on a wild bender across Tokyo for go all my family responsibilities, it's there. Uh, it's it's, there. it's possible. I need to visit you. I'll make that happen for you, Chris. <laughs> so he does know how to kick it back. That's that's what he's saying there, Matt. And if any of this is coming across as unnatural, just to show you, though, like when Lex is cooking, uh, would 4chan be a threat to my sobriety? I don't know. Uh, I don't think it'd be good for me. I don't think it'd be a threat to my sobriety. Uh, the biggest threat to my sobriety is myself. It's not anything external to me. But uh, it, uh, I mean, I occasionally go on it and uh, just makes me feel icky. Uh, Holly says, in the late 90s when I lived in Los Angeles, I used to get delivery of several different newspapers. I used to look forward to reading all the different views. I'm not so connected these days to media. Yeah, there's a time and a place for many things. New York Times is a horrible place. It promotes infant murder and sterile lifestyles. Well, guess what? Every institution and every group and every person, you can make a really compelling case that they're horrible because every institution, every group, every person has considerable horribleness about them, right? No one, no one is exempt from being human. Come on. Wasn't Michelle Goldberg such an insightful writer there, such a diligent journalist? Hasn't the porn industry been considerably decentralized? Yes, it has. Who spends money on porn? The, the same simps who donate to egos. Yes, people who want a personal connection. Does the overturn of Roe v. Wade hurt the porn industry? No, because from, from my research, much of the male seed was expelled outside the woman. And pretty much everyone I knew in the porn industry was on. Uh, the women were on birth control. I haven't heard that many stories of people getting pregnant from uh, from doing a scene. His food, for example, he kind of kicks back. He relaxes a bit. In case it's interesting, what I usually eat is some kind of meat and some kind of vegetable. So if I eat once a day, that's going to be about two pounds of meat, a total of 1,800 calories, 2,000 calories for the total meal. If I'm not being very fancy, it's going to be ground beef. Like this is grass-fed, organic, 85%, so 15% fat ground beef. In terms of keto, it results in a good macro breakdown. In terms of taste, I just like it. In terms of cooking, it's also easier because it's just the right amount of fat when it's mixed with the vegetables. It like it creates a non-sticky pan situation where I don't have to add any oil. It just mixes nicely and results in flavorful veggies. So veggies, my favorite go-to is probably cauliflower. Yeah. So it's a pretty aesthetic life he leads. But he has a vegetable and a meat, Matt. He does. With that combination, you can pretty much get the world is your oyster. <laughs> Look, it reminds me of my student days. And I stir-fried a hell of a lot. still like stir-fried, but this is kind of an anathema to somebody living in Japan. For example, this approach to food as a chemical potion that you calculate the precise nutrients and only that and that you functionally combine the ingredients to give you the precise micronutrients yep. that you need yeah again this is a yeah. cultural difference i think as you say there's, there's a breed of young guy usually that just eats for fuel and is busy doing other things and actually a newer guy an older guy but he had no interest in food like he ate simply to sustain himself he would like fry four eggs and tofu or something and that would be his thing it was just he put it in his mouth with no salt or pepper or any other kind of preparation so there are people that exist that have no interest in food but lex isn't that person because he talks about how much he relishes the amazing flavor and texture of mixing a a meat and a vegetable. And he talks a little bit about the importance of this like a ritualistic thing that humans do. I'll often eat it behind the desk, sort of uh, thinking deeply about something, oftentimes about the thing I'm going to do in the next four-hour session. Just kind of relaxing, enjoying the food, but also just thinking. Of course, if there's somebody else here with me, I'll be enjoying uh, the meal with them. 
There's nothing more beautiful than connecting with other human beings over some delicious food. Delicious, delicious. <laughs> Grilled, stir-fried beef and single vegetable with all the humans. There's a little bit in that feels like there is nothing more I enjoy with my fellow humans than consuming nutrients together in the enjoyable act of mealtime, as we all know as normal humans. I know, I know. But look, we are being mean. Lex is built differently. We established that at the beginning. And Lex, if you're listening, none of this is bad. It's just different. It's just, it's just different. different. That is the case. But there's a, I feel this detachment comes into a lot of his other takes on culture war stuff. Super sincere, but a little bit weirdly detached approach, like colors a lot of the things that he does. There is an element of it, Matt, which feels a little bit performative. Like, listen to this. Right now I'm working through the major novels of Dostoevsky because I'm going to be talking to Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, translators. I don't know when exactly, but in a few months, maybe in a month, I'll be going to Paris to talk to them. So I'm rereading Dostoevsky. I finished The Idiot. I'm not working through Crime and Punishment. Reading it in English, but I'm also going to try to get to listening to it in Russian, like taking it in both languages and trying to understand the music of the different languages and how they interact, how they connect. What is the gap? What are the things that are lost in translation? That kind of thing. So there's this kind of caricature of somebody being pretentious. And one of the things that's top of the list is references reading Dostoevsky. I've read a lot of Dostoevsky. I know. I so has Hamler and Pease. <laughs> but that's the thing. Their philosophy. Their, there's a certain thing about... It's different than saying you watch Paw Patrol for fun, right? <laughs> it is different. Or yes. Sonic the Hedgehog was the movie that like you really enjoyed over the weekend. And, and it's not just... This is his kickback time. What do you do for fun? I read... Did I ever dye my hair? Yes, I started going gray at about age 27. So I would use Grecian formula from age 27 to about about uh, age 42. And then I gave up. He does the ASCII and I compare the different versions to try and look at the nuance in languages. It's a worthy thing, but everything is worthy. Everything yeah. that he describes is worthy. Yeah, but I'm just not so sure that it's performative because I think he might really be doing that. And Okay, that will do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.